BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. What's up, what's up, what's up with your bad self there, Mark? I'll tell you exactly what what's is up. up. What is actually up? Have you, how, how bad was Can? I enjoyed it. I know, we just to be clear, yes. so that we don't tread on any toes. Yes. We can't say why you're in Cannes, but we can talk about Cannes. And the reason we can do that is because from a film point of view, I, as you know, I can You love the croisette. can don't. <clears throat> never, never liked it. Never enjoyed it. Never got it. But for for, 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 for reasons of self-promotion, you were in Cannes. Yes. So I was... But you... So you go as a critic. This well, is, I went as a critic. This is why I wasn't here last week. I haven't been for over a decade. Right. Um, and But I was there... Flogging. I was, you know, tarting myself. Hawking. Yeah. So I saw. Are you selling a, hats? Yeah, from a slightly different perspective. Pizza. And uh, also, I sat on the quasette and I was doing uh, ink drawings or like cartoons of, uh, of passers by. Yeah, passers by. Making them. And look. they'd sit down and for 10 euros, I'd do a little. Um, it's amazing that that sideline has picked up so much for you. I know. <laughs> it's amazing. So you're basically, it's hats, cold beers, and cartoons. I can do that. Very good. So I, so I, I had a, you know, I had a lovely time. The weather was great. We swam in the sea most days. And did you swim off the croisette? Yes. And oh, other so people, never... other people were paying. So, you know, what, Nothing to see in all the time that I've been to Cannes, I've never once gone in the sea. I mean, it's full of very strange people, yeah. I mean, I don't mean the French, I mean, all the people who descend from around the world also doing what I was doing, yeah, selling them selling stuff, tarting themselves around. Um, but I had I had a good time. I mean, uh, it would need to be a very sort of nice thing to be invited to go and do to me, one to miss this show, two to miss a Bruce Springsteen interview, which is what I should have been doing on the Sunday, but I didn't. I didn't do Bruce Springsteen. No, but they asked me to go and do it. And, I, and then he said, you said, no, I'm not here. And then he said, well, if he's not him, I'm not doing that other bloke. Yeah. Well, anyway, just, so it, it would have to be a very, very big, big thing. So anyway, I was there doing my big thing and it was, it was great. I had a really nice time, but I'm very sorry that I wasn't here. No. Okay. But I want more of that. Was there any, did, did you understand at any point why it is that I, that I find it so Well, I can imagine why horrendous. it would be hellish, but uh, this wasn't, the Cannes Film Festival, you know, so it was probably less crowded. The Festival du Film. Yeah, so there were fewer people there. Oh, right, so it wasn't rammed. No, it was becoming more rammed when I left and it was getting more and more busy, so I was happy to get at a tan. Um, <laughs> did you go out to the old town? We did go to the, you told me I to go to the I advised you to go to the old town and did you go? Uh, we did go, we did go, yeah, we found a, a nice place to eat. It's tough if you're trying to eat veggie food because it's like 95% <laughs> Beef, lamb, one fish dish, you know, maybe a vegetable, but, you know, they can't really be bothered with any of that kind of thing. Carnivorous nation. Pretty much. You would have struggled, I think, although you'd have liked... Oh, but I mean, mean, I've been there and I have struggled. Nigel Floyd and I used to go to a restaurant in... um, uh, up in the old town to get away from everything because the whole point is when you, it's, it is weird. The old town is quite near to where the croisette and the bunker and everything is. But but it's it's somehow separated. It's like the hot everything that's happening happens on the the croisette, the crescent, and yet if you and then if you go up to the old town, suddenly it isn't happening. And we did find somewhere there that was kind of that would do you know vegetarian pasta. And I mean Nigel's not a vegetarian, but um that we, we, we would sit and kind of we should uh, we should maybe we should go and do the show there. Not when the film festival in Can why? Well, just because it's a nice place to go and swim. There are a million nice places to go and swim. Okay, well let's just do the show from Cornwall or something like that. Fine, shall we? Well, actually, you've forgotten this. Um, or Northumberland. No, 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 no. Let me finish this because this is an interesting point of well, something, something you have forgotten. Okay, there are many things I've forgotten. Yeah, you, 
can I do it now? Can I say what it is that I'm... What is it you want to say? Okay. We did do a show from Cornwall once. You and I did the show years and years ago from Fistral Beach. Was it the road show? No, it wasn't the road show. For some, there were, I don't know why why you were doing it from there. But if you remember, there was a huge outside broadcast thing, mm-hmm. like a big tent, okay? And on that show, we interviewed the guy who had just made a Cornish language feature. And this occurred to me because it's recently been announced that Bait has become the most successful yeah, Cornish that. film of all time. <clears throat> yeah. Although it's that's a... Okay, well, name me the other five. I mean, I love bait, but that is that is kind of almost the definition of damning with faint praise because it. And I was thinking, what was the most? And then, of course, there was a a, a Cornish language feature that came out. I mean, maybe ten, fifteen years ago, and you and I, you were doing. It was before that this show existed in this incarnation. Right. It was when this show was like, you know, Bleep and Booster in Blue Peter. I do remember that we started. I started as Bleep and Boost five in, minutes long in your Blue Peter, and you were doing your Blue Peter. And for some reason, the Radio Five show was coming from, and it was five then, it wasn't Radio Five Live? I was right, it was Radio Five, and it came from Fistral Beach, from the Headland Hotel, which is the at the hotel where they filmed um, Nick Rogue's film, The Witches. I have no. This has all gone from your head. Yeah, you it? could just be making all this up. I'm not making it up. It's true. It's true. So you have already broadcast from a beach in Cornwall. Uh, an email from James King, but not that one. In fact, it's signed James King, the imposter. <laughs> signed, Mark. I enjoyed your fud if misguided debate on live albums compared with studio albums. Oh yeah, okay. On the podcast. Not only can live albums be as good as studio albums, they can actually be, be better. Case study number one. Dr. Feelgood, Britain's greatest pub rock band. Their best ever album was the 1976 live set Stupidity. Stupidity. That is great, actually. Showing off how great great they were live. It far outshines their studio albums. The public agreed as it was the only one of their albums to get to the number one slot in the UK chart. It is true. Stupidity is a brilliant album. Case study two, Paul McCartney and Wings. Though one of my heroes once McCartney did not have Lennon to rein him in. His Wings his, Over America. His studio album suffered from being overproduced. However, once on the road, all this disappeared. Subsequently, the tracks on, for instance, 1975's Venus and Mars studio album became majestic with the heavier tracks really rocking. On the triple live album Wings Over, over America. America, it all ends up with one of the top ten greatest live albums ever Case Study 3, B.B. King. His best album is Live at the Regal from 1964. Need I go on? Well, actually, there's also an argument that Jerry Lee Lewis's best album is Live at the Star Club in Hamburg. Um, because That is a really, really great Jerry Lee Lewis album. So, yes, I, I'm... As it's, it's still a general principle that, it's, you know, in general, the studio albums are better, but occasionally yeah. will allow well, I mean, if a live you, album. If, if you look at something like The Song Remains the Same... I mean, that's, there's, there's nothing on Song Remains the same that is better than the studio. And talk, a number of people said Talking Heads Stop Making Sense okay. is also a very good yeah, album it and is. movie. Although I think of that as a film rather than a soundtrack album first. Simon Blunden, in, res- in response to Mark's scoffery that, quote, there is no such thing as a downhill marathon, I can report <laughs> that the Loch Ness Marathon does indeed start on a mountain and end in the Murray Firth, so is effectively... A downhill, downhill marathon. marathon. Having run this route in 2017, however, I can confirm that there is still a thousand feet of climbing as part of that net downhill journey. So it's debatable <laughs> whether it's actually easy. Running downhill is actually quite difficult. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, I hold yourself. It back. happened because you said we were talking about the fact that the that the the Berlin Marathon is the fastest. It is the fastest marathon, and yes. you said it's because it must be downhill. No, it's just very flat. I think that's the, no, no. Excuse me, that's not. That's not how the conversation happened. I said it's because it's very flat. And you said it's because it's downhill. 
So I don't know why I'm... And then I said, there's no such thing as a downhill marathon, which is why we've now got... Really, Mark, you should have known better. (laughs) Exactly. You have a habit of talking me into... Here's the thing. Simon and Mark, on the subject of an unexpected royal visit, I'm leaving this anonymous. Okay, oh, but... yes. OK, fine. So this is when I said that, you remember there, were, there was times when the royals, if they were out doing a walkabout, mm-hmm. and there was a whole thing that people would always clean their houses on the off chance... In case. ...that the, that the Queen or, or, or a member of royalty knocked on the door and said, excuse me... Which, of course, is never going to happen, ever, apart from in Downton Abbey or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. So go on. <clears throat> so this email from Yorkshire. Please don't read out my name in case I get charged with treason. Simon Mark, on, on the subject of an unexpected royal visit to a commoner's home, I visited the humble abode many years ago of some friends who lived on the beautiful Chatsworth estate in Derbyshire in a tied farm co- farming cottage. One fine day they received a knock at their door to find a group of landed gentry on horseback. <laughs> I love the way you said that. Landed gentry. One of which politely asked if the Queen could use their facilities as she was a long way from the main house. Because they had quite a big You garden, see? You see? And needed to go whilst out horse riding with the Duke of Devonshire, who owned the land. Can you make a joke about a royal flush here? They had no time to clean before Her Majesty was on her way to their not-recently-cleaned WC, so just had to grin and bear it, knowing the state of it, but let's just say cleaning was not their priority. (laughs) Let this be a lesson to us all, particularly any doubting Thomases out there. Simon, I'm looking at you. Yes. That if you don't clean your loo, someone may come knocking at your dirty door, and it may, in fact, be a member of the royal household. That's great. Except, well, yes, that's fine. Except what? But, well, there we go. You, so it's true. That, 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 that just proves yeah. me right. If you live on the Chatsworth estate in Derbyshire, which is owned by the Duke of Devonshire, who's mates with the Queen, maybe there's more of a chance. But if you live on 21 Acacia Avenue, flat, flat six, what are the chances that HRH is going to turn up zero? I, I, all I said was, and I still stand by this, that there was a popularly held conception that if you were, if you were, if you had a hat, if you lived somewhere where a royal visit was, there was the possibility, the possibility, not the eventual, but the possibility that there would be a knock at your door and you would be asked to give the queen a cup of tea or the king or the prince or whoever a cup of tea or perhaps allow them to use your facilities. Why don't, why don't you try this weekend? You should send one of your family along the street and get them to knock on the door and say, um, I'm with Mark Kermode and. He would like to use your toilet, and we're a long way from home. Yeah, would you mind? And I then, can't believe you're not making a commode joke because I wouldn't, because that's beneath you, me. It's so far beneath you, and yet somehow I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. You managed to raise the spectre of it without actually saying it. I just thought I just like the idea of sending someone on ahead to arrange for you to go to the loo, to try hard, or whatever it is. <laughs> <To try. laughs> Probably shouldn't say that for Her Majesty. <laughs> Paul Sharville. <laughs> has been on. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. I no, wanted Paul. to write in response to your brief discussion on the subject of Blakey's. Oh, yeah. Uh, in a pre- Incidentally, can I say <laughs> that when I got home, yes. the good lady, Professor Her indoors, went, you don't know what Blakey's are? And I went, no. And she went, you're so posh. So she she has this thing that I'm, you know... I, I'm. Because you always tell me I'm Lord Font- Fauntleroy. Yeah, exactly. Well, in, in our household, it, the, the whole thing is that, you know... You're posh. I'm right? the, I, I'm the posh boy, and I'm uh, the ruffian. Then in this duo, well, apparently so <clears> because <throat> you know what Blakey's are and I didn't. Anyway, to pick on something Simon said as their purpose, as a child of the seventies, I can remember all too well the fashion for Blakey's, especially Blakey's segs, 
as they were known, possibly so named because they looked a bit like a mandarin orange segment. That's where they got their name from. And you said and you stuck them to the bottom of your shoes, and the ostensible purpose was to make them last longer. Yeah, but the actual purpose was to make them give off sparks. Yeah, Paul says Simon mentioned they were they were used as shoe protectors, and it may have been that consummate professional that he is. He wanted to correctly identify their intended purpose, but I have to say, not one single child ever. Purchased them for that reason. <laughs> Nor were they rarely, if ever, purchased by parents, who, to be fair, may have had a more valid reason for not having to trudge down to Freeman, Hardy and Willis any sooner that they, than they had to. In fact, in Orpington, where I grew up, the place to buy Blakey's was at Palmer's Bicycle Repair Shop, where teenage <laughs> boys also spent much of their time buying cow horn handlebars and puncture repair kits. Cow horn handlebars were great things. surly 20-year-olds who hated all of us. <laughs> And as Simon said, they made sparks. And as and that was impressive in the days before the internet. But Blakey's were a particular favourite of the older teenager and were, I think, intended as a clarion call to the world that this boy, despite being barely five foot five and weighing in at a five foot seven and a half stone, was demonstrating clear signs of becoming a man. There was something about the authoritative click of the shoe on the floor intended to signal passing through or arrival of an emerging responsible adult. I might be on my way to double geography, but I might also be on my way to an important business meeting about how we could make the Raleigh chopper even better. In reality, they had no such effect on anyone, but did make the wearer stand a little straighter after the self-delusion. Plus, when you could no longer maintain the facade of being a grown-up, they did make excellent sparks. So did you have Blakey's on your shoes? Yes, yes. And then the drawing pins to add extra spark factor. <laughs> I might well have considered Blakey's to be de rigueur on a new pair of shoes if I was then to go out and attempt to buy a pint or try to get into an X-rated film despite being only 15. <laughs> How can you even think I'm not old enough to drink or see Piranha? Can you not see? I have Blakey's on my shoes. Yes, these shoes, the ones with the compass in the heel and the animal prints on the sole. <laughs> En masse, a fully blaked classroom of teenage boys heading into the dining hall was something akin to a really bad river dance improv. <laughs> <laughs> of course, real men could afford... Here's the, here's the thing, sting in the tail. Go on. Of course, real men could afford to have their shoes quarter-tipped, but that's a grown-up story. What's quarter-tipped? I'm glad you gave them out. I don't know. It sounds... Yeah, it sounds as though you had a quarter of the sole dipped in... Molten steel, <laughs> or something like that. I've never heard of that. Never. No, heard it's of that. funny though, isn't it? That whole thing about footwear, because for a long time, you used to get refused service in pubs if you were wearing Doc Martens. And nowadays, Doc, everyone wears Doc Martens all the time. They, they, and they're generally the sort of the, the 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 chosen boot of the you know of the of anybody at all. And you know, it's a, there's nothing hard about wearing. But it used to be if you have Doc, Doc Martens. You could go into a pub and they could refuse to, you know, to, to, to serve you because you look like what used to be referred to as a bother boy. A ruffian. A ruffian, a scallywag. Yes, exactly. You know, and, and I remember going into, a, well, I remember two cases. Once I went into a pub with, uh, you know, lace-up dogs. I mean, you know, quite, not not the sort of full ones that come up to your knees. High, but, with you know. high heels <laughs> and glitter. That's right, high heels and glitter. And a leather jacket. And I went to the bar and the guy, the guy said, I'm not serving you with, a, with that jacket. So I took the leather jacket off and he went, no, 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 you, you've got it with you. So I went and put it outside and came back in and I said, I'm not serving you with those shoes. It was like, I'm going to be undressed by the time I finally get served. 
And there was another time that I went into a pub with Richard Stanley in London, in busy Soho, okay? Richard Stanley, the filmmaker, the guy who made Dust Devil and Hardware and has just made a new film with Nick uh, Nick Cage. And um, I went into this pub with him in, in the middle of bustling London. And I said to him, what would you like? And he said, I'll have a pint of um, uh, cider. And I, I'm a lager drinker. I drinks it all of the day, whatever that song is. And I went it's to the, the Wurzels, that is. exactly. And I went to the bar and I said, "I'll have a pint of lager and a pint of cider." And he said, "We don't serve snake bite." And I said, "I don't want snake bite. I want a pint of lager in one and a, glass and a, and, and a pint of cider in another glass." And he went, "Not at the same table." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "I'm not serving you lager and cider on the same table." I said, "But, but it's." It, What's, he said, because we don't serve snake bite. Quite apart from the fact that in order to make snake bite, you'd have to have a third glass. Yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, you, you, you know what Richard Stanley looks like. He looks like an old hippie. And there's me. I mean, how? So that was it. We were literally not allowed to drink lager and cider together on the same table on the off chance that we might conduct a chemical experiment which would somehow put the two things together. Or maybe the combination of sitting next to each other, somebody drinking lager and somebody drinking cider, would immediately turn into snake bite and a fight would break out. But if, if you ask for two double whiskies, that would That's be fine. That's absolutely fine, yes. Finally, before kickoff, Jordan, who's in Boston, Massachusetts, He's actually called Jordan Potash, which is a rather fine name. Very good. Mark and Simon, regarding this is the other story that was lingering from a couple of weeks ago. Could have picked it up last week, but you weren't here. This is is the footstepsis conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Footsteps in movies and television. I feel compelled to write in about my admittedly limited experience in the matter. Several years ago, I worked as the assistant sound editor for a TV movie. And one of the things I was tasked with, along with cutting out all the dialogue so it could be dubbed into other languages, okay. was to foley all of the footsteps in the film. You just want to remind yeah, us Yeah, so foleying is. is basically putting in sound effects artificially afterwards, and I think it was named after, it was after Mr. Mr. Foley. Yeah. Yeah. While some of this was achieved by recording my own footsteps in a booth, most of it entailed chopping up pre-recorded footsteps from various sound libraries and syncing them to the picture. Yeah. Needless to say, it was a very laborious task, so I'm glad to hear someone had noticed all of the work happening. I'd like to point out that while last week's emailers seemed to find footsteps distracting and annoying, they are there for a reason. First of all, footsteps are a way of using sound to make the pictures on screen more tangible. Footage of someone walking without the sound of their feet hitting the ground can be actually quite eerie. Second, and more crucially, footsteps, as with all good sound design, are a way to help tell the story and can help establish character, setting and mood. A good example is Arthur's giant clown shoes clopping against the pavement early on in In Joker. Joker. The footsteps are harsh and arrhythmic, indicating the unforgiving setting and the character's instability. However, I will say that footsteps can be hard to ignore once you're aware of them, especially if they're particularly prominent in the mix. And I think that can be an example of films imitating other films rather than reality. Uh, Anyway, I guess if that's the thing that you do... Now... Of course, I'm aware of it all the time. I went to see The Irishman, and all the time... Were you just thinking, aware of the... The only thing I'm thinking... I'm the only one in the in a very packed screening who's thinking of all the footsteps. There's a, there's a still from The Irishman of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro walking down the street, and Robert De Niro has got on massive riser boots, you know, like Frankenstein oh, right. boots. Because he, in, I haven't seen Irishman yet, I'm seeing it next week, because his character is meant to be taller than the 
Pacino character, and he's wearing these things like you know, it's like the picture that you see of Humphrey Bogart on set of Casablanca. He's always wearing these massive risers. But I imagine they must have been very soft because they've got kind of rubbery soles. They wouldn't have made any noise at all. And no Blakeys or click, no Blakeys, no clickety clack, no on the track. No, don't uh, look back. Uh, if you want to uh, email the show, that'd be a very nice thing, and uh, and, and and we can read. Well, that you out. can't say that in the in the podcast extras because no one can hear. Oh, I see. Not for today, but in general. No, not for today, but in they, general, they can email and then you yeah. know Mayo. What, what email should they address? Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Should we start the show? Yeah. Are we going to get that changed at any point? No, I think it's established. I I have raised this a number of times, but when have you raised it? Uh, a number of times. Oh, <laughs> well, it's weird. Well, why isn't it wittertainment at bbc.co.uk? Yeah, which is what. Or why isn't it Kermode? Well, that would be ludicrous because you're just the contributor. Yeah, but then why isn't it Mayo and Kermode? You know, it's not hard to it's change. It's too long. That's why it's too long. It's not too, what are you talking about? It's too long. Oh, I can't, you know, you got, it's fine. But if it's... How about M and K? And then I'm still going... And, yeah, and then they'd all spell it wrong. They'd all spell exactly. Kermode. So just or they'd put Mayo and Mark Lamar. That's the way Or something is. like that. Yeah, so just... let's just leave Mark out of it because he doesn't matter. He's just a contributor. Exactly. Just holds the fort when you're away, swanning around in Cannes. On with the show. Stands in with the interviews when you can't be bothered to be there because you're in a foreign country, having, oh, you know, eating French cuisine and swimming in the sea. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I just work here. On with the show. Hello. Good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. Thank you to John. Thank you. To Ellis, and here we are uh, together again, back together, reunited. That's Peaches and Herb. I don't know. Peaches and Herb. Peaches and Herb reunited. It was a good song. Because we're reunited that's... and it feels... So... That one. Well, a different tune, but yeah, pretty much. No, no, that's how that goes. Reunited and it No, it doesn't feels go down. It so goes reunited, good. goes up. Go on, how does it go? I'm not singing. Go on, how does it go? I'm not a performing monkey. I'm just saying... Reu... No, it doesn't. It goes down. Reunited and No, it, it goes fe- reunited. Reunited, and... but there's two of them. One of them, Peaches, Presumably. is going up, while Herb. It's called going a harmony. Down the I suppose it's okay. a contrapuntal melody. We're it? both right. We're both right. It's an argument. We're it's... both right. And there we go. If only the rest of the country could come to that kind we're of looking at... exactly. We're looking for we're truth. Uniting the nation Fine. with our truth. Um, what are you going to do in the next two hours? I'll review some films. What, what films are you going to be reviewing? We're going to be reviewing uh, Black and Blue, uh, Monos, Last Black Man in San Francisco, and I, uh, not you, I will be talking yes. to yes, to our special guest about Doctor Sleep, Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah, but that's did she ask for you? Is that what happened? She she said uh, she said I'm not going to do that program if I have to deal with him. Fair enough. Meaning you. No, it's because because what happens is just to be absolutely clear about this, you are the interviewer in this show, and I'm the reviewer. Every now and then, because of your busy social life, you're yes, unable. I was away in it. Last you were away, so I couldn't do the... around in foreign climes, and so so it was asked whether I would step into the fray, and I did. I'm, and I, I can tell you right from the beginning that I'm, I, I was not at your shining stand. But I'm looking forward to it because you always bring an insight that uh, only a critic of your caliber can provide. Is that caliber the alcohol-free lager? Well, that was a long time ago. It was a very long Back time Back in the day ago. when alcohol-free lager, you go, no, thanks, thing. I'll have water. <laughs> thanks very much. Um, Tim Barnes has been on. I hadn't thought about this for weeks, but I happened to catch Simon's theory from a while back about pulling out your eyelashes to get your football team to score. Oh, now, yeah, this is I, one of your weirdest habits. Yes. Did, did I you, think this came up in a conversation with John, John and Ellis. John Ellis, yeah, because it was, some, it, was their, it was part of their weirdness amnesty. Yes. And, you've, and you revealed that this if is... If my team was behind... You would pull an eyebrow I'd out. I'd pull an eye... Not an eyebrow, an eyelash. An out. eyelash. And every eyelash... And if we are... And I, I've thought about it. And if 
if we were at home, it would be an eyelash on the left. And if we were away, it would be an eyelash on my right. And and the belief was that when I pull out the eyelash, then that is somehow <laughs> making Tottenham score a goal. And may I ask you, did it ever work? Oh, yeah, all the time. But did it but not really? No, of course not. No, 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 I know not, not really in the real world, but did... Well, you know, it happens like one time in a hundred ago. There you go, there see? There you go, fine, okay. So it was enough to keep you pulling your... And as a result of it, I you now have no eyelashes. Exactly right. And Tottenham are bottom of the fourth division. So that's the fourth division. There's a phrase I hadn't heard for Does that not exist anymore? No, it doesn't, no. How many divisions are there now? Because well, they've stopped it now. It's like it used to be first division down to fourth division, but now it's like Stops Premier... Ultra, Premier, super, fabulous championship. Division. Yeah, there we go. Second, yeah, which is basically how many of them are there? Four. <laughs> yeah, so it's still the first to the fourth division. Anyway, they... there's Tim, and he he was listening into my theory about pulling out your eyelashes to get your team to score. It popped into my mind during Manchester United against Liverpool, and thought it worth a shot. Sure enough, within a few seconds, Lalana scored the equaliser. My only regret <laughs> was pulling out just the one eyelash when 1-2 would obviously be in a better result rather than 1-0. Is that, so how, it, go, is so that how it worked? If, if, you pulled, if, if you pulled another eyelash out, they would score another goal? In theory, that's the way all this superstitious nonsense okay. happens. But Do you in, know where it came from? Out of my head. <laughs> in the same way that write, I write things on the back of my head if I want to remember stuff. Yeah, so no, that is weird. It, it is just uh, utterly ludicrous. But here's the thing. David in Connemara has got some more ideas for our... Uh, Wittertainment theme park. Oh, great. Witterworld. Witterworld. This came out of a conversation with Waterworld that I'm a lot happier with still. This came out of a conversation with Waterworld. Yes. Talking a, to Waterworld when it was on television. You know, they, they can't hear you, don't you? It's just... um, David says, My, I've got some suggestions for some more rides. Planet of the Ralphs, spelt with lots of Fs, strictly over 18, where people try to outswear various Rafe Fiennes characters with Rafe Spall popping up, regularly <laughs> quoting lines from Hot Fires to throw everyone off. That's the trouble with the bat because he's a Rafe, so you can't have Battle of the Ralphs because... Rafe Spall is, a, is an actual Rafe, isn't it? Yes, it's written Rafe. R-A-F-E, whereas Rafe Fiennes is written with a Ralph. Yeah. So I'm not sure that... So that's not made Do it Do you think Ralph Fiennes' parents just couldn't spell? The Hills Have Guys... A roller coaster that charts the ups and downs of Guy Ritchie's films, from Snatch and Sherlock Holmes down to King Arthur Daly and Rock and Roll by way of Aladdin. Or is it the other way around? And my favourite one is uh, Firth House on the left, a house where everyone dressed as Colin Firth in his various roles and all attempt to be terribly, terribly English. I quite like Firth House on the left. Does that work for you? That would be great. Yeah, Box office top ten coming up, um, including uh, some lobby correspondence. Okay, which you'll be expecting. Fantastic. On the subject of divinity teachers yes. and torture. Yes. <laughs> this is just to recap. This is because you've established. I had a divinity teacher who, if he was displeased with you in some way, was that you? No, nope, I don't think so. Oh, it was me. I'm. I'm so sorry. <sighs> Turn it standards. Off. Yeah, it's I go away for a week. Come back. Mark's using it. Sorry. Crazy. Anyway, so I had a divinity teacher, RE teacher, who used to uh, grab you by the little bits of hair by your ear and then twist them around his finger and then lift. <clears throat> anyway, Andy Atchison, medium-term listener, first-time emailer. I've listened with interest and some amusement to your discussion in recent weeks of the hair-raising activities of Simon's divinity teacher lifting him by his hair as punishment. Last week, someone called Bill, even wrote in to say Simon's experience was not unique and a similar thing had happened to them at the hands of a Mr Doherty, possibly Doherty. This second example led Mark to inquire, 
is it talked about in the Bible? Is that how they figured it out? Does it say... Um, does it say, uh, lo and behold, he did grasp his brother's side hairs and twist them? Nonsense, I thought. What a ludicrous question. Here we go. As someone who's been working for the church, the other one, the other one. for a number of years and is currently studying at Bible college to become a vicar, okay. I like to imagine I have a pretty good grasp of the Bible and felt sure that God would never do anything of the sort. <laughs> how wrong I was. As I sat in a lecture on the book of Ezekiel... I love this email already. I don't even know where it's going. But... Have you read Ezekiel recently? Recently, no. Okay. Well, Andy was at a lecture about Ezekiel earlier this week, and I was amazed to read these words in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 3, as Ezekiel describes an encounter with God. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God... He took me to Jerusalem. Now, of course, I'm very keen to point out that this was God's way of dealing with a very grumpy and reluctant (laughs) prophet many thousands of years ago and was certainly not supposed to be a pattern for behaviour for people today. But the the point remains, there it is in black and white. There we go. So why did you lift up these boys by the hair? Because it says in Ezekiel, he stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head and lifted me up. Wow. Even unto the ceiling. (laughs) Seth the Almighty. Saying, Mayo, stop whatever it is you're doing. And bring forth the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Anyway. (laughs) You know, so... Mayo at BBC.com. Last time you said yes. Last time you said that. Yes. There was a number of people on Twitter saying, "I'm sorry. Where's that from? Where's that from? I know where it's from. Where's it? I know we all know where it's, it's from. It's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Thank you. Thank you very much. So the box office top ten coming now at twenty. The Peanut Butter Falcon. I thought this was great. I really, really liked it. I thought it was a really, really interesting film, and it's got um, a lovely sort of interplay between the two characters. Um, who are sort of chalk and cheese. One of them has escaped from an old people's home in which he's been placed because uh, he has Down syndrome and the other is kind of on the run from his life and they team up in order to go and meet a wrestler whom Zach has been desperate to, to, to meet. And I, I just thought it was really brilliantly played. It's certainly the, the best thing I've seen uh, Shia LaBeouf in and I hear very good things about Shia LaBeouf's new film that I think played at the London Film Festival. So I thought this was, I thought this was great. And I, again, I flagged up in the review before. I think it's worth remembering that, um, you know, My Feral Heart, the British film, um, sort of trod a similar path a few years ago and became a huge, you know, huge success. And uh, it was great. I, I, I love the Peanut Butter Falcon. I thought it was just great. Michael Kerrigan in Beverly. Uh, I'm sure that Peanut Butter Falcon won't trouble the top 10. Well, it's kind of 20, mm. 10. Uh, maybe not even the 20. However, even now and then, a little gem appears and hits you between the eyes when you least expect it. Peanut Butter Falcon is that gem. I cried, I laughed, I cried again. What a beautiful yet understated study of human friendship and kindness with not a hint of saccharine. The film reminded me of why I love cinema so much. Well worth seeking out. Um, Hallie Marielle Mitchell in Martinez in the San Francisco Bay Area of California. Last week I listened to the uh, review Mark gave of Peanut Butter Falcon. I jumped up, clicked my heels together whilst also shooting my fist into the air, breakfast club style. I would have gone to see this and loved it no matter what, but I was particularly invested because I've had the privilege of nannying a young girl with Down syndrome since she was born. I saw it alone and then again with the little girl's mum and a large group from our local Down syndrome connection community. I have rarely seen so many people crying and simultaneously clapping as the credits rolled. The balancing act of wanting to keep someone safe and making sure his or her needs are met whilst making 
sure he or she is living their life on their own terms and aspiring to their goals is touchingly exemplified by LaBeouf and Johnson's characters. Uh, love the show. Thank you, Hallie. Thank you, Mike. And, and worth saying that I think Zach, either Gott Sagan or Gott Sagan, I'm, I'm not entirely sure the pronunciation goes, um, I think we will see more of him because I think he's it's it's such a strong performance, and I think it's it's really nuanced, and 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 I I think we will see more of him, and I hope we see more of Stephen Brandon as well. Uh, we also have a, a, a lobby correspondent, so if you've missed this, this is where we just invite you. So when you've seen a movie, uh, you walk out, you stand in the lobby, in a lobby, hence the name, hence the name, and you get your phone out and you record your thought, instant thoughts. Ten seconds is fine. We don't need any more than that. <laughs> just so you know, keep it brief. So the peanut butter falcon is our first lobby correspondent. This is Lee Davis. Just watched the Peanut Butter Falcon at the Electric Cinema in Birmingham. I think it could be the new Kings of Summer. The cast were great. They got a round of applause here. Lee Davis reporting for Wittertainment. I quite like that as a sign-off. That's really Trevor great. Trevor McDonald, ITN. Westminster. That's very good. Also, the Electric is a brilliant uh, uh, cinema, and well done for flagging up that Kings of Summer because that that was a connection that I saw as well. And interestingly enough, one of the key players in Kings of Summer turns up in Monos this week, in um, unrecognisably so in Monos. So that's a nice uh, circularity. Hustler, uh, Hustlers is at number ten. Still very good. Um, I still think it's possible that uh, that J Lo might pick up an Oscar nomination for it because it's proved a, a, you know a big hit not only with critics but also with audiences. And speaking of big hits. Downton Abbey's at nine. It's the biggest of big hits. Um, it is the film in which <laughs> the royal visit. Suddenly, we were discussing this before about whether it was ever true that if there was a royal uh, thing happening near your house, you had to clean the house in case the, 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 the queen dropped him for tea. This time, of course, it's the king. I love the fact that Julian Fellows did consider briefly making it about the general strike, but then decided that it does, the general strike gets one line. Yes, and the line is something like. Did it bother you very much, says the king. To Maggie Smith. And Maggie Smith says, my maid was a communist. She got my a maid is uppity. a communist and she was a bit grumpy. <laughs> Something like that, which I like very much. Uh, Judy is at number eight. Phil from Bristol. Uh, I have had the good fortune to be an erstwhile colonial commoner, having lived for extended periods in Minnesota since 1979. The recalled experience of phone calls to and from America in 1979 and the early 80s during Judy led me first to the hill that I will die on, that three coins in a 1960s phone box would have bought two-fifths of a second talking time, not the five minutes <laughs> exactly. clearly illustrated here. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely true. This was quickly supplanted by the experience of time delay talking, which I learnt to hone over those years of transatlantic talking to much-loved friends and host family. A crowning glory was one occasion when I faked a call from the UK by imitating the time delay with high school friend Steve and then arriving five minutes later at his door for his anniversary party. I'm sorry, <laughs> Judy and Lorna, it was moving, but I couldn't get past that 40 years too early connectivity because that's true. I mean, you sometimes still hear... <clears throat> Excuse me. Hear it on the radio when there's a satellite delay yeah. and having any kind of conversation is difficult because you're all talking over each other. Yeah. Um, anyway, yes, Judy is at uh, number eight. Well, I liked it. Um, you and I have a slightly different feeling about the central performance. I, I, I never lost sight of it being Renee Zellweger. A good performance by Renee Zellweger, but I, it always seemed to me to be her performing. Although, as I said, I reconciled it in my head by imagining that the that it works because the film is about performance. Um, but I also think that that it manages to get away with um, devices which I I hadn't expected. It is rooted in a stage show, but the whole device of her meeting her fans, 
who then become the way into the story. Through their eyes, we see the wonder of Judy. That is an invention for the screenplay of the film, and I think it works surprisingly well because when you describe it, it sounds when when you when one describes it, it sounds oddly creaky, and yet on screen, I completely bought it. So Judy's at number eight. Official Secrets is a new entry at number seven. And this benefits hugely from a very good performance by uh, Kira Knightley, who I mean, is on an absolute roll at the moment. I mean, just really, really interesting, challenging parts and uh, and doing them all very well. The film itself, I think, is slightly broad strokes. It is a film about um, real-life whistleblower, Catherine Gunn, who um, was working at GCHQ, and in the run-up to the Iraq War, uh, released an email that was that basically implicated the Americans in trying to fix a United Nations uh, Security Council vote. And as a result, she was prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. And the story is, it's a very, very important story. And her bravery is extraordinary, not least because, as is said more than once in the film, she had nothing to gain and everything to lose. And the, you know, the weight with which the state came down upon her is really scary. I think the film is very broad strokes in some of its characterizations, particularly uh, the depiction of Roger Alton, who's the Observer editor. I mean, I knew, you know, I mean, I, I've never worked in the Observer, but I freelanced for the Observer, so I've met Roger um, a few times. And um, and I thought that the, the portrayal of him was very cartoony, very, very cartoony. Um, and there's also uh, Reese Fan's portrayal of a, a journalist who's an eccentric journalist, it has to be said, but the way Reese Ephans plays him, you know, he's, he's just a bag of crazy. Um, so, but, but Kira Knightley was the thing that held it together for me. Um, Daniel Bell on this email. I saw Official Secrets in the Cheltenham cinema last week, which seemed quite apt. The film managed to keep up a good pace, keep it interesting, and not fall down the rabbit hole of drowning in the detail that so many have beforehand. Kira Knightley was excellent as always. I think that's it. I think that's what we got on that. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, we're kind of saying the same thing, broad strokes, mm-hmm. but we're just taking slightly different conclusions from it. Gemini Man is at number six. Will Smith goes head to head with young Will Smith. Um, <laughs> It's very likely that if you see this in most cinemas, you're not going to see it in the in the high frame rate in which we saw it, in which it was shot by Ang Lee, who has, for some reason, which completely fails me, has become fascinated by high frame rate technology. And um, I have to say, there was a recent announcement by James Cameron <coughs> that he wasn't developing Avatar with HFR because he said it's not the, the new big thing. And it definitely isn't. You, did you see the Hobbit movies in 48 frames? Did you I see? think I did, actually. And it's, uh, there is just something weirdly uncinematic about it. And it doesn't matter how much people say, well, that's just because you're used to 24 frames or 25 frames. You're used to that, and this is the future. It isn't. It genuinely isn't, because there is something at the moment profoundly uncinematic about the experience of of, uh, of HFR, particularly the kind of the level of high frame rate 3D under which we saw Gemini Man. Also, the film itself is a little bit ropey. It rehashes. I mean, the script had been around for ages, various different versions of it going on for decades. Finally, it's brought to the screen by Ang Lee. And you just think, you know, Ang Lee's a brilliant storyteller. Just stop playing with the tech and just tell a decent story. Do you want a, <clears throat> do you want a nerdy email about tech? Go ahead. Really? Yeah, I do. Okay. This is from James in Northampton. Um, 
as well as your, uh, there's an alternative viewpoint on the yeah. technology. No, go ahead. As well as your show and trips to the cinema, I'm a big fan of computer games. You may not be aware that in recent years, one of the greatest areas of advance in this hobby has been that of high refresh rate displays. Okay, which is like the, the computer game equivalent of high frame rate, yeah. Only a decade ago, games would mostly appear at 30 frames a second, which is nigh indistingu- indistinguishable from 24 frames per second of yeah. cinema. Yeah. Today, you can purchase 120 frames per second or even 240 displays at reasonable prices. As well as offering greater immersion, this offers tangible benefits in competitive games as the faster things appear on screen, the faster you can react to them. But you don't have to react rapidly to frames in a film, I can hear Mark cry. In that voice. (laughs) And that is true. But as someone who has now spent a lot of time looking at high refresh rate displays, I can tell you that I am spoilt. When watching modern films, I find the slow, juddery movement distracting. Not all the time, but it is very noticeable in fast-moving action films, such as the bashy-crashy finales of recent Marvel films. I may be in a nerdy minority, but high refresh rate screens are only going to get more common. Can I say, um, firstly, I think that the future of high refresh or high frame rate is absolutely video games and interactive uh, virtual reality experiences, specifically also in terms of, uh, of 3D, because the as far as I understand, the the HFR in um, in Gemini Man is 60 and 60, so it's 60 per eye, so which is 120 a second. Um, and I think that will absolutely become the future of experiential, immersive game playing. I don't think it has a future in cinema. I have a confession to make, by yeah. the way. When uh, the uh, Star Wars tickets went on sale, yeah, uh, I I've bought the family tickets to go and see it in IMAX. Okay, and the only screening I could get was three D, okay. and I really and there was a lot of protest uh, within the family because they know. Yeah, but what can you do? What can you do? It's a family trip. It is you, what it is. That, will that be okay? Will you? I think so. I mean, I know that there was a lot of there's been there have been films in the past in which it has been quite hard to see them in two D, and it was I was trying to think what it was recently. Whether it was the last or there was there have been issues about seeing IMAX non three D presentations. It was it was one of those things where you know there's performances at three in the morning yeah. all, all gone, yeah, all, exactly. all sold out or not see film. Uh, Gemini f- uh, Man is at six. Abominable is at five. You missed that zombie. Oh, yes, right. No, you haven't. No, but you've got yes. Yeah. Zombie Land is at four. Yeah, yeah, Abominable is fine. Some nice graphics, but nothing to write home about. Zombie Land Double Tap is the sequel that nobody was really asking for. Zombie Land itself was perfectly fine. Zombie Land Double Tap picks up all this time later. And there are a couple of good gags. Unfortunately, the best gag in the film is spoiled in the trailer. And if only we hadn't known about it, it would have made the end of the film a lot funnier. Paul Bolland says, saw a double bill of Zombieland, Double Tap and Shaun the Sheep Farm again. One was a lovingly crafted movie with great attention to detail. The other was a lazy, uninspiring cash grab. Yeah. I assume that you could work out. And both of them, incidentally, page. feature sequences with combine harvesters. And the Combine Harvester sequence in Zombieland, not very funny. The Combine Harvester sequence in Shaun the Sheep Farmageddon, which is at number three, which you were about to move on to, yeah? Yes, I is indeed. just wonderful. I loved the Shaun the Sheep movie Farmageddon. I had the great privilege of being on stage with Nick Park recently because it was 30 years of Wallace and Gromit and me and the good lady professor indoors were doing a thing about it in Bristol, which is where Linda's from. And um, and there was the people, some of the Ardman people who worked on Shaun the Sheep. And when people make those movies, you know, it's a huge cruise. But they were all saying, oh, you know, it was, it was just lovely to hear the critical reaction being as positive as it was. And all I could think was, well, how would anybody not be positive about it? It is so beautifully made. It's so funny. It's so good. 
And particularly at the moment, whatever your stance on the current events, I think we could all do with 90 minutes of watching something that just made us feel uplifted and laugh out loud. I mean, laugh out loud. Laugh out loud. Laugh out loud. Laugh Laugh out loud. 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 Okay. Slapstick humour. Non-verbal slapstick humour. I mean, you know, the farming does all that. You know that um, Gromit was going to talk originally. Or Gromit was going to was going to have a dog voice. You do know. That. I didn't know. That. I don't know. Yeah, and then they could have been animating the thing. But anyway, so I think Ardman are just in a world of their own when it comes to this stuff, and I just loved Farmageddon. On Farmageddon, we have a lobby correspondent. Here comes Tim Dawkins and an unnamed child. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Was it good? Yeah. What was the best bit? A tractor. Will you come to the cinema again with us? Yeah. The best bit was what? The tractor. Oh, is that what you Yeah, tractor. Oh, okay. I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. that's, yeah. It's a very, very funny bit in a tractor. Uh, so that's a number three. And uh, number two is Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. <laughs> Emma Askew, family trip to Maleficent, decent plot art, stunning visuals. I was barely whelmed, which, <laughs> which confused me. Maybe it was not that's enough right. Maleficent and Crow or too many mumble basil expositions for yeah. why the birdsong was motivated to birdsong. It was all just okay. Yeah. A uh, few standout performances, but a waste of Warwick Davis. Thing one and thing two enjoyed it, but I haven't referenced it since. A clear sign. And, and there we go. Land. That's exactly the point. In fact, I think I said that in my review that it's it, it, you, it's there's nothing about it that is memorable. Whilst you're watching it, there may be individual bits which are kind of distracting and fine. I mean, the thing with the weird CGI fairies is just really, really odd. But it the whole thing feels so contrived, so much like. Well, okay, you know everything we learnt in the first film, but yeah, but nobody thinks that. They still think Maleficent bad, even now it's start again. And the shame of it is that when Angelina Jolie was talking about the film, she talks about it in a way which is really interesting and makes you think, I would love to see that film that you are talking about, not this film, which just feels like a you know bag of bits that were left over from the first one, sort of strung together in a haphazard fashion. But, oh yeah, if I there go, Mistress of Evil. Hannah Berger in... Uh... Colonial Commoner in California. Just listen to Mark's review about Maleficent. I'm saddened he didn't get the joy from it that my daughters and I did. I have two girls, nine and seven. We embarked on a Maleficent journey this weekend. The girls had seen the trailer for the new movie, were very eager to see it, but we hadn't seen the first one. Therefore, we rented the first Maleficent on Friday evening at home. We had a wonderful time laughing and enjoying this wonderful movie. We loved the twist and how they developed Maleficent into a character you could truly sympathise with and so on. So we set off on Friday to see the new one. We fell in love with the second probably more than the first. As Angelina Jolie said in the interview, we loved how physically strong and magical Maleficent was, but also the strength of Aurora. She was in the thick of things and not once was she concerned about her physical appearance or afraid to get herself in danger in order to save or help the people that she cared for. Both characters were developed so well that all three of us were in tears at a particular part uh, in the film. Okay, well, I'm really glad that you got that out of it because that's what the film was attempting to deliver. And I do think that there are, you know, the the fact of it, I think the fact of its gender politics is 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 all for the good and that's why when what what Angelina Jolie was talking about it was just like yes but I just want this to be a better film clearly uh you got something out of it that I didn't and I'm glad that that's the case because it's a shame when something with uh, essentially you know good artistic intentions falls flat but I have to say the thing that I got out of it most was that it felt like the studio were making it because it was a sequel and the first thing had uh you know name awareness and I it just it did feel terribly 
terribly shambolic, particularly in terms of the writing. It just felt like somebody had taken a bag of ideas and thrown them randomly across the room and said, yeah, string them together, it'll be fine. And the box office number one is Joker. Still dividing the critics, still doing brilliantly with audiences. I mean, it's it's one of those really interesting cases in which the controversy hasn't acted against it, it has acted for it. Some people say that there's no such thing as bad publicity. I would disagree. If you look at the case of David Cronenberg's crash, I think there is a, an argument that that film was damaged by everything that happened around the, you know, the the publicity for it. And when it was finally released, everyone thought, "Oh, well, finally, when the ban is lifted, you know, great," and everyone went in. They didn't. By that point, people had kind of just had lost interest in it. In the case of Joker, I think that there is there are some really, really great things in it. I also think that it's a, a very cynical film, as I think it should be. And for me, the very best part of the film along with Joaquin Phoenix's performance, is Hilda Goodenadotter's score, which is just brilliant. And I keep thinking, if that score wasn't there doing such subtle underpinning, the film would seem would be much more uh, lacking in subtlety than I think it is. I mean, it's not a subtle film at the best of times, but the Hilda Goodenadotter's score really, really gives it a depth that I think wouldn't have been there otherwise. I just want to pick up on a couple of uh, things. First of all, Farmageddon. Uh, which yeah. you were talking about. Which I um, loved, 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 loved. Claire took her daughter Ellie, age three, to see it, her very first cinema trip. What a joy it was, she says, to be able to take her to farm again today and for her to be able to tell me afterwards it was a really, really good one. It was a really, really good one. She may have broken the code many times, asking excited questions, demanding snacks and asking to watch it again, but that was music <laughs> to my ears. I hope the church will forgive her. Thank you, Ardman, for your honest, universal filmmaking with love at its heart. I think that is a lovely phrase. Honest, universal filmmaking is exactly right. They are doing something that is very, very hard to get right, and they, they hit the nail on the head so regularly. And just on the, uh, on the subject of Joker, which still is getting a, you know, a torrent of correspondence. Yeah, sure. Floss says, Joker is a coiled spring of a film. It's a balloon pumped with laughing gas, stretched to breaking point, a smile pulled until it hurts. That's a great phrase. Phoenix fully deserves to be in awards contention. His Arthur is skeletal, colourless caterpillar, cocooned in a lifetime of loneliness and neglect. When Joker emerges, a monstrously beautiful butterfly, it is impossible to look away. People worried this movie would inspire people to perform copycat acts of violence. Instead, it's inspired waves of New York tourists to dance down the steps. There's a joke in there somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> Who wrote that email? Uh, Florence Hafter. It's a beautiful piece of writing. It is very nice, isn't it? Um, and Mark Stibby uh, on this. Simon and Mark, I was orphaned in 1960. I never knew my biological father. My birth mother abandoned me in Hackney. I was then adopted from an orphanage in 1961 and came over time to discover and process what this means. You could say then that I have an acute understanding of what it means to be both an orphan and an adopted child. I have been writing about these realities for the last 30 years. All this, by the way, of introduction to my comments about Joker. What a unique, poignant and masterful portrayal of what it means to be an orphan. For me, Joker is the ultimate orphan, the most finely observed and aesthetically riveting portrayal of an orphan since Milton's depiction of Lucifer in Paradise Lost. If Lucifer is the original orphan of Western storytelling then Joker is in many ways the ultimate orphan. When Joker reads the two words, abandoned child, I felt the shock waves in my soul. 
This brings me to the issue you both discussed in a fascinatingly polarised way in relation to both the characters in Good Posture and Joker. Can you like a film in which you don't like the protagonists? C.S. Lewis, in a preface to Paradise Lost, clearly felt the force of this question when discussing Milton's portrayal of Lucifer. His conclusion? He said, Great storytellers can describe unpleasant things in pleasurable ways. That's what Todd Phillips has done, I would argue, with Joker. In portraying the slow descent into ugliness, he has created a thing of strange beauty. And that email was from... Mark Stibby, who is an author. I, I, I know this sounds like a stupid thing to say, but is it me or is the standard of email well, those two, those particularly two, high? Those two, both on Joker. I mean, Mark has a particular insight to that but you know to to find out that that he with his experience found it an extraordinary film yeah, is, is yeah. and i mean all, but also to just to to make those references which are which are haunting and absolutely uh, absolutely spot on yeah Wow. Uh, your emails mayo at bbc.co.uk I think I'll just stop because text so you don't really need me you should just do the show just no, read no, no. that stuff out we'd be lost without you mark Thank you, you are our compass Thank- you are our magnetic but you're going to say you are our comfort blanket and, that, that is genuinely where I thought and, that sentence was going. You are a moral lodestar. <laughs> I'll stop now. That was an album by Bruce Springsteen. He's there coming is, on later he in the show. There's a sequel to The Shining coming out next week. It's called Dr. Sleep. Mark spoke to one of its stars, Rebecca Ferguson. That's the Rebecca Ferguson. And you'll hear from them after this clip. You're wondering why I'm wearing such a funny hat. <laughs> I always wear this hat. So much. It's a part of my name now. My friends... My very, very best friends, they just call me Rose the Hat. It looks like I'm Edition's hat. It is. It's a magic hat. Do you want to see? Nothing up my sleeves. <gasps> Nothing in my hat. Don't worry, that's my friend. You're missing the trick. Reach inside. Wow. It's so pretty. Because it's special. And speaking of special, you're a little magic too, aren't you? The flower in my hand, what colour is it? Purple. Violet. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, so after all these years, we revisit The Shining in a completely uh, new story based on the thing by Stephen King. For those who haven't seen it, tell us about your character and where we meet her. I play Rose the Hat, or as I try and say Rose the Hat, (laughs) (laughs) with a little bit of an Irish twang. I'm a leader of a group of misfits, of outcasts. So this is several years after the original Shining. Danny has now grown up and is living with the memories of everything that happened to him in the Overlook Hotel. Um, Without giving away anything else about the plot, because I think people want to see it unfold, how do the paths of Danny Torrance and your character meet? It's, it's an interesting one to interview, isn't it? We can't describe know, anything. Nothing happens, and yet... <laughs> no, but we, we do pick up 40 years later, I would say, and <laughs> we meet Danny Torrent, who is battling emotions and, and stress from, from his past, and I think slowly accepting where he is when another threat occurs and it activates um, something within him. And his path is crossed with a little child called Abra. Okay. And the connection between my character and Danny Torrent is through this little girl who possesses a lot of what she calls the magic. And as this is what my character feeds off, she is, to quote myself, which I like doing, my great big whale. 
that I want to capture. That was very elegantly done because it summed it up. It didn't actually give anything away. That's Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I have to make a confession is that I, uh, I did a doctorate in horror fiction. So I, th- that's what I do. But I read in an interview that you're not a horror fan. <gasps> Could you be with me in all of the interviews? Because I don't feel eloquent Gun-free, enough to... I have to... nothing else to do. That's <laughs> no, it's very simple to say that I wasn't a fan of horror movies. I was not a fan and I am still not a fan of things jumping out at me. Okay. And that is what they call a start... I mean, you would know how to put it eloquently, but a yeah. startle re- effect, yeah. the non-control that something will come out. I hate it yeah. and I, I will cry. <laughs> There's something that happens in me. If you watch a movie which has got With, to the jump scare. Well, even if someone behind me would jump out, I would not enjoy it. You know right. those Halloween things that people walk around and they jump out? Oh, yeah, it yeah. is my, my apps. I, I just feel uncomfortable talking about it. Okay. Um, but then obviously with these films, I did, you know, The Kid Will Be King, which is more for the younger audience. But I wanted to do research and think, what is it that scares and what is it to be animated but not too animated for the younger audience? Mm. And then you take it into the, to the genre for, for us adults. What is it that is non-startle? What could I watch and feel terrified about? Mm. And I watched a lot of serial killers. I lo- watched a lot of interviews with psychopaths. Okay as other people would refer to them, yeah. tried to find the link between and give my character wisps of that. And okay. what made me the most scared was the maternal nurturing aspect, the human bit of someone where I can look at them and think, like Ted Bundy, for example, a beautiful, intelligent, smart man, were drawn to him. And yet he describes so brilliantly his emotion or lack of emotion when he kills these people. Had you seen the original Shining when it came out? Yes. Did it scare you? I was too young to be scared in in the beauty, of, in the in the aspect of what Kubrick created. But I think what it was was the sound effects. It was mm-hmm. the music. It was very loud. Yeah, yeah. It was a very monotone tune. And I fell asleep through the maze. And I think because I was so tense... Um, and then I couldn't sleep for a couple of nights after that. And I never saw the ending until now when I was offered this role. And I obviously watched The Shining. Obviously, it's, I don't think it's giving anything away to say that The Overlook does uh, feature as a character in the new film. And Very that, well put. That does, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> that does mean that there must have been moments when you felt like you were walking through something that you had experienced in the past. Can you tell me about that? I guess this is also the, one of the beauties about being an actor and, and being a part of this this world. If you love film mm. and if you get the possibility to link on to something that you have appreciated. I mean, I, I absolutely loved Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah. And when I saw the sets that they had created for our film, knowing that a linking scene would have something to do with the past and, and you know, the, the bloody corridors, I think we can mention that were created yeah, yeah, yeah. in the former film, they could all be seen as, as, as linking bits into our film. That was incredible. And also, because Mike Flanagan is such a geek, <laughs> ridiculous geek, I mean, <laughs> love him because of it. And also, that was one of the reasons why I did this film. Um, he created the tricycle for us grown-ups. Yeah. And we got to cycle through... <laughs> Through the through the uh, the sets with the sound effect of the carpet and the wood. You mentioned the bloody corridor. One of my favourite moments in it is your character seeing the, the the bloody corridor as you refer to it. But the look on her face is like that's good. Yes, 
Which is guys is kind of exactly what I remember because that was the the original trailer for The Shining was just that shot and the and the music and the sound of the yeah of that score in the background. Well, I thought it was a very nice touch. It's not, but it's like oh, that's good. I'm we kind did, of impressed by the. It's funny you bring that up because we did so many takes. I try to always push down my own expectations, but a lot of people ask me if if I if it, there was a pressure to do this film in relation to The Shining. And for me, it is so important to see them as separate entities. Mm -hmm. They're they're obviously connected, the same characters, but new things appear, new threats, and you should be able to see this film without having seen The Shining, and it should still be a good film. But for me, that moment was the most important one. How does Rose the Hat react in an environment she has never been before? But for us movie geeks, we all know, and I think she would love it and embrace it. It's the sign of human weakness, isn't it, that she feeds off. You're defined to some extent by, you said, they called Rose the Hat. Did you get to choose that? Was there like a million hats? Because we saw in, you know, for example, when Kubrick was doing Clockwork Orange, there was a million versions of the bowler hat before they got to the one that Alex had. What happened with you and the hat? Nope. This was such a simple pick. Now, I'm saying this. Costume designer might go, don't you dare. (laughs) You have no idea what I had. When I read the book... It was so well described, mm. but also, I can't quote him completely, but, but it talked about questioning gravity, that it perched on the back of her head, questioning all forms of gravity or something. Yeah. And we talked about the possibility of having it there, but then that would become too much sci-fi because people would question the idea that it wouldn't fall off. Yeah, uh, It was about making everything real. And then there's something very sexy about a top hat. It has very sharp edges, yet it's sleekness. And... We have an artist in the family, and I started describing it, and she started drawing it. So I have all of her drawings, which I'd like yeah. to frame and put on the wall. Yeah. And it becomes basically the hat, because the costume designer had done the same thing. We chopped off right. a real top hat. Oh, right, okay. So we top, chopped off an inch and a half. And then inside it says Flanagan's Hat Maker. Now, I still don't know if that was the real hat maker, <laughs> or if he just made the old symbol as a little nod to, yeah. like... Did you keep it? I didn't. It just got brought off set straight away. It was like treated like million dollars. <laughs> Where's the hat? You mentioned sci-fi briefly. Is Dune finished? Have you shot it? Yes. Or? Can you say anything about what it was, what the experience was like? Grand. A film with Denny is, I've never filmed with him before. Um, this is Denny Villeneuve. This is Denny Villeneuve. Um, the imagery is flabbergastingly beautiful and something that he does, which was so much fun to work with, is the, the scope of the imagery and then the next shot is a close-up of a screaming woman, for example. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing throughout this film is the balance of the massive, big-budget film and creating it into an indie feeling. And that balance was throughout the entire film, which means it's a small feeling of a crew, but in a grand scale. And I mean, I worked with the most incredible actors. I feel extremely lucky. I'm a huge fan of The Kid Who Would Be King, which I thought didn't find the audience that it should have done. Mm. I I thought that film was really charming and had a real kind of... We have a thing over here that used to be called the Children's Film Foundation, (laughs) which used to make films like that, but with with no budget. And it was kind of like that, but made properly. Did you enjoy making that film? I loved it that film and also because it was my first ever villain <laughs> I haven't really I mean you can analyse villains and we have yeah. good and bad blah, but that was a real villain and I had to be a caricature sort of an um, animated character for, for kids and I talked to my son a lot about it and the costume was fun and being built into a tree and 
and the director, everything. And also working with children, I always thought would be a pain. I read that you thought that kids in films were scary. I don't like children in scary movies. I don't like the vulnerability and the voice of a lost little child. Yeah. I find that's just silly. So The Exorcist isn't a big favourite for you? Oh, my God. Do you know what the worst bit of The Exorcist is? It's when she walks like a spider down the stairs. There's something about a twisted body, the anatomy of move, the movement. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> it's so horrible. But I want to end it not by saying children are, are just children. There's something so, even with, with Dr. Sleep, there's something so real when you work with children who had yet not been coloured by the need to impress us, mm-hmm. that they just do what they do, which means when you act with them or against them, you need to give them equally as much realism as possible because yeah. that's what they will bounce off. Yeah, yeah. Whilst with older actors, obviously not all because they're brilliant in their ways, become selfish we do become more and more selfish. And I think that is one of the most wonderful things about children. Mission Impossible, more. Are you, are you, do we know what's happening? I have no idea what's happening. So that you haven't seen scripts? or haven't seen anything. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if they're in pre-production. I think Tom at the moment is post Top Gun 2. But the thing I'm a is, critic. I know nothing. He is you know? everywhere. Yeah. I don't even know how he gets so many films done. So right now, I, I have no idea. I'm, going, I'm off tomorrow on a plane to do reminiscence with Hugh Jackman. Wow. If you had to say one thing to say to audiences bef- about Dr. Sleep, I mean, it's always very, very hard to kind of to sum up what a film is. If you were describing Dr. Sleep, somebody who hasn't yet seen it, how would you sell it to them? How would you pitch it? A colourful, beautiful incline to absolute torment. <laughs> You know that's not going to sell tickets, don't you? <laughs> no, it will. But the thing is, you can't say it in one sentence. No, I know, I know. For I me, know. what I love about this film is the importance of sound and colour. I keep on getting back to this, but there's something that I'm stuck with right, right now. And it's after working with Mike. It's also after working with Denny. Yeah. Everything around, I guess, what actors are doing, because I'm the actor, I find interesting mm-hmm. and so important. And this film, I hope, will have you on that edge of the seat. One of the most beautiful compliments that were given, I think, actually, to Mission, was I bought a ticket, but I only used the edge of the seat. I bought a seat, but I only (laughs) only used the the edge edge of it. And I thought, that's such a good comment, (laughs) because that is what you want. Yeah, that's very good. Rebecca, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure so speaking much. to you. I hope the film is. I look forward to, uh, to, to Dune and to wh- which, whatever happens with Mission Impossible. And instantly, you're right about the spider walk. The spider walk is really, really creepy. Oh, so horrible. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Rebecca Ferguson talking to Mark. She sounded terrific. I'd like to say that I did then point out um, that actually I was the person that found the spider walk and it was first ever seen in a documentary that I made 21 years ago called I mean, The Fear of God. Who would have thought you end up talking about The Exorcist? I know, I know. It was such a, it was such a surprise. But um, uh, that documentary is, uh, looks very likely to come back on BBC iPlayer for Halloween. 21 years ago, we found that spider. And then, of course, it ended up back in the director's cut, of the, or the, 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 uh, technically the writer's cut of the movie. I still haven't seen it, but I will do when you tell me. To. Okay, when the moment is right. So can you say we're going to review... 
this movie next. We're going to review it next week. Yeah, absolutely. And is there anything else you want to say about it? No, I think. I, I, how did you, do you think the interview went? Was I, I okay? I was being uh, sub you, you know. So oh, I thought it was terrific. Thank you. I thought you brought the very best because I know obviously she's a monster. That's terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, she was really, really, she nice. was really terrific. nice. So we can uh, we can do a review before the news. Yeah, by the grace of God, which is a French Belgian uh, true story drama by Francois Ozon, who. Um, made things like See the Sea, Under the Sand, Time to Leave, Swimming Pool. And very, very adventurous and interesting director. This is a very st- straightly played drama about child abuse within the Catholic Church based on a true story, as I said, sent on three characters who as adults discover that they were preyed upon by the same priest as a child. And it begins with one going to the forward to the church to, to tell them what happened. And apparently he's, he's looked upon sympathetically and they said, yes, this is terrible. And they organise a meeting and the priest doesn't deny the allegations at all. But they end up being asked to pray together. And then it turns out that, in fact, firstly, there are many more victims. Secondly, the church knew about them. And thirdly, he's still out there and still working and there is a photograph fairly recently of him working with children and so they form a support group which then decides to take action against the church to you know to break the silence and also to support each other and the church responds by well essentially indulging in engaging in what looks like a kind of cover-up um the film is done in as i said it's a very very sort of underplayed drama um, it's based very closely on uh, on real life events. In February, the BBC website reported that the lawyers for the person involved in the case had tried to block the release of the film because the trial was coming up. And uh, Ozon had said ninety percent of the film concerns the victims; it's their story, and also everything else that, that's depicted in the film is pretty much out in the public domain already. Um, so I think it's a it, it's it's an important story, and it's told with with a great degree of understatement which is very important because what happens as the drama unfolds is that you it's you you sort of seeing it unfolding it's not in real time but it kind of feels like you're watching it unfold really gradually and you're trying to uh to make sense of because at the beginning you're sort of given the impression that this is being taken seriously and the allegation is being taken seriously and there is this completely strange uh, disjunct between, on the one hand, an ad- a kind of admission of guilt, and on the other hand, a, a failure to act upon that admission. But the film is then also about what happens to the people as they're involved in the case, how it takes over their life, how it comes to change their own adult relationships. It's very serious. It's very underplayed. It's done, I think, um, with a with a just the right degree of balance to take the, the story as seriously and as factually as it needs to be taken. And it's called? It's called By the Grace of God. OK. Uh, Chris Green on an email. My daughter has given me a list of 60 things to do in my 60th year. <laughs> really? One of these is to send an wow. email to your programme. She's okay. put this on the list as I do rather bang on about how much I like the show. Good. So by writing this, whether anyone reads it or not, I tick one off my 60 tasks. Very good. I'm not sure if I'm a long-term listener or medium-term listener, but I started listening in 2007. So I think that makes you a long-term listener. Yeah, that's long. Since I became regular, my wife and I have used your reviews to drive much of our film going, and we've seen many films which you have loved, with pride probably being the pick of the bunch, which I'm pretty sure would have passed us by otherwise. We have also, possibly as importantly, avoided some that we would have seen if we hadn't been warned off. But we have uh, what we have found is that uh, if you both really like the films, then we will too. 
Some of the Balkan-based goat herding films, which Mark <laughs> tends to like, are a little bit too much for us. I'm, that's, I'm never going to be forgiven for that, am I? My, my wife is a bit of a latecomer to your show, but is the one who spotted hello to Jason Isaacs in some odd places, for example, at the back of a novel by a New Zealand sci-fi writer. Uh, anyway, so Chris, thank you. Well done, and all the best with the rest of your And incidentally, tasks. hello to Jason Isaacs, to whom we have not said hello yet. That's right. Did you do that last week when I wasn't here? Uh, yeah, I think so. Bet you didn't. Bet you're just saying that. No, I think we did. Okay. Uh, Ruth Kern, uh, just been to see Shaun the Sheep Farm again, which we were talking about earlier. My 10-year-old was reluctant, but it didn't take long before she was laughing hysterically. Yeah, exactly. Babbling, crying at one point, and by the credits, dancing in the aisle. Great. At what age does the code start to apply? Well, I think if you're talking about a movie like Farmageddon with a young audience, it's just any way in which you want to express your joy is fine. I, 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 two things I'd like to say on that subject. Firstly... Stay to the very end because there is an end credits gag that is, is probably fun. The, the older you are, the funnier it is. Excellent. So and if you can remember, you know, a, a, a certain previous era, there's a particularly funny joke. Second thing is um, I saw Farmageddon in a screening room full of, you know, the, the group that I walk around with, cynical old film critics, many of them are half my age, obviously. But, you know, we, we go like a pack of dogs from one screening room to the next and we we can often seem world weary and a bit haggard. And in that screening room um, on Dean Street for the ninety minutes or whatever it was that Sean the Sheep Farmageddon was on, we all became ten years old. And everyone just it was it was magic. It was like cocoon. It was like we'd beautiful. We've dived deep into the plasma pool from cocoon. Simon Beza on the Wirral um, about Maleficent, which he titles Malifluent. Um, <laughs> I thought this film was truly remarkable. Michelle Pfeiffer and Angelina Jolie were locked in a non-stop scenery-chewing competition yeah, exactly. from start to finish, yet somehow Chewy Telegiofor still managed to out-munch them both <laughs> by channeling William Shatner despite having less screen time and only a cave to chomp on. <laughs> truly there is, remarkable. There is a huge amount of scenery-chewing. And one more on Joker for the moment, Andy Gillard. I should probably start by admitting I'm a man with a Joker tattoo covering the majority of my arm. So a film on the Joker is something which means a lot to me. So he's okay. clearly invested a little bit yeah. in this but which, which I wonder which incarnation of the Joker he has Wait, tattooed. Don't know. Don't know. On leaving the multiplex last Thursday, I felt I enjoyed the movie, but there was still a niche I couldn't scratch. So I went back this Monday night, this time to the wonderful independent cinema, The Lighthouse in Wolverhampton. This time upon leaving the piece, this time upon leaving, the pieces had all fallen into place and what was wrong with an otherwise perfectly good movie. Okay. Whacking Phoenix is let down by Todd Phillips. Phoenix gives a performance as good as you're ever likely to see. However, the director's approach to storytelling does Phoenix a disservice. It feels as though Phillips has a million different things he wants to say on mental health, on abuse, on society, on comedy, on the haves and have-nots. The list goes on and tells the viewer with all the subtlety of bashing your head with Harley Quinn's mallet. A better Uh director may have picked fewer themes and threads and let them be explored more fully. However, a better director we didn't have. And I feel there is much more mileage to be gotten out of exploring the themes in this film. I mean, I, I think it, it is undoubtedly true that Todd Phillips's primary register is not subtlety. There is no question about that. And I mean, I, you know, I had sort of said that before, and I, say, I think it's absolutely the case. It's not a subtle film. It is quite a subtle performance, and it, the film is made infinitely more subtle by, and I'll say it again, Hilda Godner-Dutter's uh, score is really, really terrific. 
Uh, okay, so 11 minutes past four o'clock. This is Five Live. Tell us something that's new and famous that we've seen the poster of. So Terminator Dark Fate, which I think opened a couple of days ago. So I presume that after I've done this, we will have some uh, emails about it. Am I correct in that? I have one. You have one? Okay, fine. So if, you, if you've seen Terminator already, send us an email, mayo at bbc.co.uk. Okay, so it kind of basically reunites uh, Linda Hamilton and Arnold Schwarzenegger after a very long uh, period uh, apart. Um if you're a Terminator fan, it's no big surprise to say that Terminator 2 was the the last properly decent Terminator movie. This is directed by Tim Miller, who made Deadpool, and it's produced by and story written by James Cameron. Um, the, 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 the writing credits are multiple, but James Cameron is kind of in the background of all this. I said not helming it, but, but producing and overseeing the story. So... Sometime, some many years after Sarah Connor changed the future, a new super sleek Terminator comes back, comes from the future to the past to hunt uh, Ramos, played by Anthony Reyes, who lives in Mexico City. He is pursued by Grace, played by Mackenzie Davis, who is an enhanced super soldier who basically pulls a Michael Bean, as in going back in time from the future to stop the the robot that's going back in time to change the to do the thing to the past mm-hmm. and to change the future and the path their paths cross with that of Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton. Here's a clip. So you're here to protect her. What are you? Never seen one like you before. Almost human. I am human. Just enhanced. You know, increased speed and strength. Which means I can rip your throat out if you put me off, so don't. Your turn. My name is Sarah Connor. When I was about her age, a Terminator was sent to kill me to stop the birth of my son, John, leader of the resistance. We changed the future, saved three billion lives. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, Without wanting to give away any more about the story we know that in other main characters including uh, Arnie himself uh, appear later on in the drama on a sort of positive note um, I think it's encouraging to see a mega budget film like this with uh, you know with a really sort of punchy heroine um, of the age that Linda Hamilton is essentially as the central character of the film it did remind me of you know how great it was to see Jamie Lee Curtis to, you know help right at the center of the most recent Halloween movie um which I thought well, I thought was a, actually a pretty decent reboot remake however however you want to call it I mean, it's a sequel but it's uh, it's something that kind of revisited ideas from the first one so that I think is a good thing and it's also interesting that essentially you have uh you have three very very strong female characters holding their own against insurmountable odds And it's important not to forget just how significant the character of Sarah Connor was. I mean, you you, you think about it in terms of Ripley from Alien, sort of in many ways, you know, iconically redefining what was possible in very big, successful genre movies. So all those things are good. And all those things made me want to like Terminator Dark Fate. I wish it was a better film than it is. Um... It, it, I think the best that can be said about it is this. It is the best Terminator film since T2. 
But that is pretty much the definition of damning with faint praise, because who remembers anything about Rise of the Machines or Genesis or Terminator Salvation other than the fact that Christian Bale went mad and had a meltdown on set and started yelling at the guy moving the light around? I remember that. Because he suddenly realised that he was in a film directed by McGee and just and couldn't face the awful reality of it. I mean, there's been TV spin-offs which have done other interesting things with the story. And Cameron is quoted as having said of this new version that this recaptures the tone of the original. He says it has the same intensity, the same take-no-prisoners feeling, and the same sense of abject terror. Well, no, it doesn't. Um, what it does have is reheated themes from the first two films that that have become tied up in so many time-loop knots in the interim that... Nobody, even fans now find it hard to remember who did what to whom, when, how and why. And why does any of it matter when in the timey-wimey time loop thing that we're in at the moment, we know that anything could be changed at any point by somebody coming back from the future and coming back to change, to affect the present, to change the part and therefore make a new future. So there is this really overwhelming sense that the reason the film exists is because the Terminator franchise still has cachet and still has just sort of heft in terms of the industry itself. And, you know, you, you, you end up watching the story and being unengaged in it and thinking, Oh, I remember seeing T2 and seeing that incredible, you know, remember the, 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 the fluid, uh, Terminator, the, the fluid metal I thing. Do. Which we, we hadn't seen, I mean, we'd seen it to some extent in in the abyss, but that it was, it was jaw-dropping. I mean, back, you have to remember what CGI looked like in the days when we hadn't seen all that stuff before. It was like Jason and the Argonauts, or it was like, you know, special effects in the X. You simply had not seen that stuff before. And what that meant was you didn't stop and go, okay, but if it's fluid metal, then why does it matter how hard you hit it or how many things you run it through? Because it's fluid. It's, it doesn't make any difference. And why is it taking the shape of a person anyway? Because the whole thing about being undercover really doesn't add up beyond act number one. And why doesn't it just turn into a very long string river? And then you'd be like, why is any of this? And you've... I hadn't thought of that last one. No, but, but it... But you only start thinking that stuff when the story itself isn't engaging you. Why does it have an exo? Why does it have a skeleton? Why does it have an exoskeleton? Why does the exoskeleton able to step out? Why, 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 why? Whereas before you were just going, wow, 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 wow. And wow turning to why is a really big change in terms Perfect, of the visuals. That's all you need to know. The biggest question, I think, um, is that the you know why does it exist and i think it, it it is in the end simply financial there's nothing beyond there's nothing essentially wrong about movies existing to make money but weirdly enough terminator is like alien both alien and terminator were standalone movies that nobody thought they needed sequels and the fact that they then produced aliens and t2 both of which were arguably at least on a par with, if not better than, because so substantially different for the first film, but taking the ideas from the first film and then playing with them on a much bigger canvas. That's astonishing. But in both the case of both Alien and Terminator, having got away with it so brilliantly with, with the second instalment, nothing that came afterwards was necessary. And the very best you could say of any of the sequels after that is, well, they, they don't do anything to damage or unravel the mythology. Um, I really wanted to like this. It was, you know, the familiarity of meeting those characters again because there was a point in my life when they were really important to me. 
I really wanted the jokes to be funnier and not to feel like they had just been sort of dropped in afterwards in a screenwriting conference. And I really wanted to feel that there was a sense of jeopardy. And I didn't. And I think that in the end, it is at very best, the best Terminator movie since T2. But that ain't saying much. I remember seeing Terminator 2 and being just exactly as you say completely gobsmacked yeah. because, because also they just flipped it yeah and exactly i knew nothing about the second one i just thought well, i'd seen the first one which was right you know um and then oh i see and there's that great moment with the you know with the shotgun and yeah the, yeah yeah and the bomb the, yeah which is incredible and but also that the the the, the genius of terminator 2 is when she says the speech about you know, he now he's a father figure, and I realise that he would not stop ever. And she basically takes the Terminator speech, the Michael Bean speech, and turns, and it's completely flipped on its head because now he's functioning in loco parentis, and that's genius. But that's it. You've done it. You've done the small, stripped down, low budget version of it, and you've done the big, hopped up, massive budget version of it, and you've gone from Terminator being baddie, baddie, baddie to Terminator being weirdly loco parentis father figure. That's it. Nothing else is needed. Joey O'Neill, PhD, student in radiation and medical physics at the University of Surrey. Okay. Frosty's Silver Swimming Award. Dear, I'll be back. And actually, I'm back already, if you hadn't noticed. (laughs) As a huge fan of the original two Terminator films, especially Judgment Day, and possessing inherent distrust of any film that feels the need to use actors talking to camera to help advertise the film in trailers... It was with no small amount of tre- trepidation, trepidation that I went down to my local multiplex this Thursday to see Terminated Dark Fate, having prepared myself for disappointment given the past three questionable sequels. I was pleasantly surprised with what James Cameron had to offer. The action scenes were action-y. The film featured three strong female leads, including a great performance from Mackenzie Davis, and Arnie's role felt like a nice uh, successor to his part in Terminated 2. However, some of Linda Hamilton's lines felt a bit ripe, and the excessive use of birdsong throughout seemed a little bit too edgy for my tastes. Overall, as a pulpy action film, I found that it worked well, and I'll be happy to treat this as the final part of a trilogy surrounding Sarah Connor and the Terminator, uh, Tingity Tonk, and all that stuff. Uh, Joey, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I would be I would be happy to treat it as the final part, but I would be happier if if nothing had happened after after the end of T two. Uh, Mayo at bbc.co.uk. If you that's actually what's what I want, I want somebody to come back from the future and change the present to stop all Terminator sequels yeah. after T two. That's what I want. That's a good idea. <laughs> you know, you said you had a leather jacket and someone didn't serve yeah. you. Yeah, I had a Terminator so two did leather I. jacket, which yeah. was a promo item. So did I, and it which, said and it said the American spelling of Terminator two Judgment Day. Remember that on the back oh, it was that's pressed right. in the yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, enough, I still got mine. I found it in a cupboard the other day. I don't fit it anymore. But In fact, Joey on his email makes the judgment day. I gave mine to my sister, and my sister is a – well, she was a deputy head, So, uh, and she wore the Terminator 2 jacket. And I think uh, if you're a head teacher, you're wearing a Terminator 2 leather jacket, that makes you You are rocking. Cool. You are absolutely rocking. And rocking. Uh, so that's Terminator 2, which – Will it be album of the week? Uh, will it be album of the week? Will it be movie of the week? Which station I, are you on? I said it's very confusing after a while. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mark. I do films. Thank I don't you know very about much. the rest of your life, but yes. this is what I do. Will it make it to movie of the week? I think it's very, very unlikely. So let's find out something else that might instead. Okay, so Monos, which is the new film by Alejandro Landis, which is a, a really extraordinary piece of work. There you it go. Is, album, of, album, album of the, of the week. week, definitely. 
So it is, it's a film nominally about teenage guerrillas, teenage soldiers being trained in an unspecified mountain above, you know, above the cloud line as part of an ongoing war, which is never given geographical or geopolitical expression of exactly where it is or exactly what's happening. They have cartoony nom de guerre war names, Rambo, Wolf, Boom Boom. They're being trained by a scary messenger figure who says to them at the beginning that their main job is that they're looking after what appears to be an American prisoner of war who seems to be being held to ransom. And they're told at the beginning that they have been given a gift of a milk cow, and that they must milk. If they don't milk the cow, the cow will explode. And so there's this sort of strange, almost fairy tale tenor to it at the beginning. The messenger then leaves and they are then left to their own devices. And... Um, they have to report back to whoever the authorities are through a radio, through radio transmissions, but they are essentially alone. They are isolated. And then during the course of the movie, they have to leave that area. They have to move down into the jungle. The group starts to fracture. And there is a very, very specific reference to Lord of the Flies in the, in the, the uh, appearance of a pig's head on a stick, literally a pig's head on a stick, which, of course, as you'll know, is the kind of central image from Lord of the Flies, which is I do remember from the book. Yes. No, no, exactly. And in fact, the phrase is "pigs head on a stick." Um, so, on the one hand, it's it's a film about teenage soldiers, of which we have seen uh, other films, like for example, uh, Johnny Mad Dog. Um, uh, Johnny Mad Dog actually, I think, is a really, really underrated movie. It's extraordinary, kind of hallucinogenic, terrifying, but very, very moving uh, portrait of child soldiery. And the film is about that, but it's also not about that. It is about um, the, the the central characters that we meet and the, the group dynamic is created brilliantly using both um, actors who are seasoned, accomplished actors. One of the characters is played by um, uh, by Mosharius, who had a central role. He was in the Hannah Montana TV series, had a central role in Last Kings of Summer. Other members of the cast are complete uh, neophytes, people arriving on the screen for the, for the first time, who were discovered by this extensive casting process. And I have to say, it's a great credit to the film that watching it, you don't have any sense that those are the trained actors and those aren't. They all seem to be a group that you completely believe that they have been living this isolated existence on the top of this mountain under this strange ongoing war situation. You believe that completely. What happens is that the, the group, which has a kind of feral quality in terms of its own internal uh, hierarchical dynamic, starts to fracture things start to fall apart and obviously as we said before lord of the flies there's also certain references to comrades heart of darkness which appears to just run through so much cinema at the moment i mean ad astra is absolutely you know a heart of darkness story that happens to be taking place in space i also bizarrely saw um things that made me think i mean i don't think these are reference points that the director used. the director and the writer said that when they were making the film they watched come and see the traumatizing you know child's eye view of war the klimov film but it, at one point i was thinking of barbet schroeder's uh, la valley the valley obscured by clouds which is this very strange movie about a mythical place that uh, it's meant to be paradisial, but this is very dark undertones to it. Occasionally, it seemed like that crossed with the the threat element of uh, Ruggiero Deodato's Cannibal Holocaust, almost. The way in which it's filmed is with these deeply oversaturated colours that place you right 
experientially in the middle of this landscape, in the middle of this group, in the middle of this environment. And the film has an almost, at one point, an actually hallucinogenic tone to it because what happens is that as as we become involved in the group dynamics, we start to share the experiences of each one of the characters. And then underneath it all is a score by Mika Levy, which is one of the most brilliantly strange things I have heard in years. I had been listening to the score for a long time before I saw the film. I only saw the film this week, but I've been listening to the score for several weeks. It came out on a CD a few weeks ago. And it's got this strange combination. At the top end of it, there are these whistles and beeps, which on the one hand echo the the bird calls that the that the teenagers make to you know to each other. On the other hand, captures the sort of shriek, shrill whistle of authority, but also seemed to me to evoke like a radio signal or a sonar, something completely lost, beeping, you know, lost in the in the universe. And then underneath that, there's this timpani and these really sort of deep, thunderous, like they're on a volcano that's about to explode, or like there's an earthquake that's rumbling underneath them. And what, what the genius of it is that the film becomes this completely hallucinogenic, head-spinning, immersory experience immersive experience. So whereas on the one hand it is dealing with the horror of the idea of child soldiers, it's also dealing with the the dynamic between this group. It's dealing with adolescence. It's very, very fluid in terms of its depiction of borders and of gender borders and of age borders and of geographical borders. It's a film in which elements seem to flow almost randomly into each other, so much so that I remember once when I when I was reviewing There Will Be Blood, I said it's almost like the film is rewriting the language of of, uh, of narrative film as you're watching it. Because I remember the first half an hour of There Will Be Blood, in which there's almost no dialogue. It's all that, that strange Johnny Greenwood soundtrack. And I felt a, a, a tonal similarity with that, watching this film, thinking I was halfway through it, thinking I don't, I don't quite know what this is. But what I do know is that it's, it's doing what it's doing quite brilliantly. And it's the combination, I mean, obviously, you know, cinema is an audiovisual medium. It's the it's the, the synchronicity of those two things tied together. This has a fantastic ensemble cast. It has a setting which is on the one hand rooted in an awful reality, but also has an almost fabulous fairy tale quality to it. Um, it's really visually striking. And the soundtrack is just, as I said, it's like something that's, I mean, Mika Levy obviously did uh, Under the Skin and uh, he's got a, an Oscar nomination for Jackie. The soundtrack is quite the strangest and quite the most brilliant thing that I've heard in a long time. And it put me in mind to some extent of the pulsing nature of Anna Meredith's music from uh, eighth grade. And it's, I mean, this is uh, this is a really foolish thing to say as a film critic, but it's a film that has to be seen to be believed, as opposed to as a film that a po- film that I, that I could adequately explain to you in words, because it is so much to do with the audio visual experience. I mean, I've tried, I've given it my best yeah, shot. It's a good shot, thank you, but it's probably failed. And the movie is called Monos. So. It's, that's probably ahead, I would say, on point at the moment. <laughs> of Just a little bit. Uh, if you're trying to work out what the movie of the week is going to be. Final half hour features reviews of? Uh, other stuff. 
other stuff. Does it include The Last Black Man? In yes, San thank Francisco? you. That's very well done. Thank black you very much. And Sorry, I, I literally got to the end of that review and I just went like that. <sighs> yeah, yes, The Last Black Man and also Black and Blue. Uh, TV movie of the week coming up in just a second on the subject of Terminator. Ben Desmond said, I had the pleasure of seeing Terminator Dark Fate on Wednesday night at the delightful Plaza Cinema in Dorchester. As a fan of the first two, I was naturally curious to see how Tim Miller would approach this latest instalment especially after the various lacklustre sequels. Happy to report this is definitely the best in the franchise since T2. Although, Although, as let me say again, that's not saying much. Although walking out of the screening, I did have reservations. On a positive note, we finally got a Terminator film that appeared to fit to the world created by Cameron. And at least with James Cameron, not David Cameron, obviously. <laughs> at least for the first time. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> Terminator. <laughs> In the middle of it all, somebody calls a referendum. And then it... By David Cameron. <laughs> and at least for the first half, a style that echoed the tone of those former films. The performances, especially those of Hamilton, Schwarzenegger and Davis, were strong, along with Miller's direction, which was solid. However, what the film lacked for me was true emotional depth and physicality of the prior films. In both T1 and T2, the action sequences never felt as though they were there to the detriment of the story, whereas nothing in the CGI-heavy scenes of Dark Fate, particularly in the third act, came anywhere close to the police station shootout of Terminator 1. And Martin Coleman, TDF, is about as exciting as watching liquid metal morph into a baked bean tin. Uh, A friend said to me after we discussed the movie, the trailer looked really good. Well, so does the film. But that's the only place that the positive adjectives come in handy. It's clever in its appearance, but underneath it's the same tired, shiny metal skeleton we're all so familiar with. What's worse is that it just takes exactly the same plot, good and evil, yin and yang, ant and deck, come from the future (laughs) and save the future. That's very funny. It lays that rusty old plot over an alternative yet identical backdrop. Lots of chasing and hiding and shooting and fighting and shape-shifting and fiery gun-laden action to bore you to death. In executing this feeble excuse for a story, it left me contemplating that they could have left out a good chunk of the CGI-laden fight scenes and used the save money to pay someone to write a better storyline. But he'll be back. Uh, Martin Coleman. Are you ready for TV Movie of the Week? I am ready. These are, of course, the best films on subscription-free television posted on our socials uh, during the week. Selections include uh, Box Trolls, Vivich, 1931 King Kong and so on. James Beckingham, a good, strong week. Good animation with Frank and Weenie and box trolls. Great atmospheric horror with the Vivich. How did you say it? The Vivich. You do say it. Yeah, it's like Fantastic. It's to do with the way that it is styled on the poster. I'll be watching The Servant. Great story, well shot, terrific turn from Dirk Bogard. He's an actor I'd love to see working today. What modern movie roles would he have had? He well, I tell you, if they carry on with the synthespian technology, you probably will see him acting today. He could have played any of Colin Firth or Hugh Grant's best roles, and he would have made a fantastic Hannibal Lecter. And just remind me that that film was called Firth House on the Left. That was the idea for, for the new uh, Witterworld. <laughs> it would be good. I, just and think, I we, think that is such a brilliant idea. You know that Colin Firth would endorse it and say, yes, you can do that. Yeah, I feel that he's already done that. I think so. Catherine with a K, uh, definitely the servant, sort of a few years back, was not expecting it to be so interestingly subversive. Led me into a whole world of great 60s and 70s Dirk Bogard films. Uh, John Watkins, it's got to be Fosama? Fosama. 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 Uh, Although with the advisory, it's a tough watch and definitely not for people of a nervous disposition. Clive Ulber, it's got to be King Kong, well-paced story, amazing effects from Willis O'Brien, superior to the Peter Jackson version. Mark will choose the Vivich. Fergal uh, Hogan, I haven't seen Deadpool, so I'll watch that for a laugh. Long time since I saw Pritz's Honour. 
And Memory says, yes, so I'll watch that too. Christian Cocker. It has to be the deliciously scrungy box trolls. Boomtish jokes are plenty and an amazing sequence after the movie that shows the level of care and love that goes into each moment. Uh, what is our TV movie of the week? Well, I, I absolutely love box trolls and in any other week I would go for that. But I am going to go for Forsama because uh, it was in cinemas fairly recently and um, this is a documentary that's made uh, by Wad al-Khatib, uh, who has shot this extraordinary footage whilst living in Aleppo and raising uh, her young daughter for Sama of the title. And the film is a, a real frontline view of life in a city under siege. And it's given a sort of poetic edge by the, the documentary being reconstructed as a letter. And it's some of it is... Almost unbearable. Some of it you really will have to, you'll find yourself looking away. But I think it's really important. It's got a brilliantly understated score by Nanita Desai. And it's it's just, it's really remarkable documentary filmmaking that is raw and shocking, but also poetic and heartfelt. And I think is one of the most important films of the year. And that is on television on Saturday on Channel 4 at 9 at night. You will have seen some of that footage in the Channel 4 reports that were being sent out of Aleppo originally, but this feature film is worth seeing because of the way that it, it, it's it's a poetic um, piece, complete and of itself. Uh, TV movie, <coughs> excuse me, TV movie of the week. So bad, it's bad. You're choosing between The Hangover Part Two, Monsters Dark Continent, Hitman, Agent Forty Seven, and Transformers: Age of Extinction. Yeah, it's a stinky week, isn't it? Craig A. Moody. I think Mark will pick Hangover Two, as I seem to recall him being particularly offended by it. Fortunately, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen any of them. Alexander Phillips has to be Monsters offended by Dark it. Continent since the first one was so good. Hangover and Transformers had previous, so we're no surprise. Did anyone actually see Agent 47? Lewis Willing, definitely Transformers. My seven-year-old makes much more compelling and clearer narrative in his, mind, in his Minecraft games. Yeah. Mr. London... It boggles my mind that the writer of Hangover Part 2, one of the worst films committed to celluloid, then went on to write Chernobyl, one of the greatest series committed to celluloid. Mind-blowing, which is true. And and that the director of Hangover Part 2 went on to make Joker. Liz Appleteeth on Twitter, Hangover Part 2 is my choice just because everyone's fawning over the director of Joker who wrote this garbage and his comments about comedy recently speak volumes. Mark will pick Transformers. Because it's Transformers. And Adam G.S., I've got no idea which one Age of Extinction is. All the Michael Bay Transformer movies sort of blend into one unwatchable mess. So I'll pick that one. What is our TV movie of the week so bad it's bad? Well, I am going to go for, to, for Hangover Part 2. Uh, I did particularly dislike this when it came out, although, as everyone knows, I'm no fan of any of the Hangover movies, but because it demonstrates an interesting point, which is that it is possible for somebody to make films that you really detest and for them, them to make something that's interesting. And uh, weirdly enough, when I first came out of Joker, I thought, I can't believe the guy behind the Hangover movies made those. And then I thought, no, I can believe it because they both are films that have a very toxic view of the world. The difference is one of them's meant to be funny and it's not Joker. Yeah. And in, that's the thing in Joker is it's not funny and that's the point. And the, and, and the Chernobyl reference is worth repeating. And thank you, Mr. London, for repeating. Yeah, I've not seen Chernobyl. It's absolutely amazing. In fact, Anthony Horowitz said it's the best TV drama he has ever seen in his life. And he's written a lot of them, so he so he kind of knows. Well. But it's also the fact that it's 
it's the, it's one writer. There's only one writer for the entire series. It's quite astonishing. Anyway, when can I avoid uh, Hangover Part Two? You can avoid uh, Hangover Part Two um, at uh, nine at night on Saturday on ITV Two, and I'll find it very easy to avoid that because I wouldn't know how to find ITV Two if you paid me. You just—it's just a little bit down from ITV One. It won't though. It'll be a bit, little bit up from it, won't it? Uh, oh, I don't know. When I'm channel surfing, I get as far as the BBC News Channel, and I just stop and just leave that on permanently. Richard Osman did a tweet, which is something that in future generations they'll be baffled by the fact that ITV Plus One actually wasn't ITV Two. <laughs> yeah, that was very good. Anyway, it's a quarter to five. Okay, let's press on. Okay, so the last Black Man in San Francisco, which is a Sundance hit. Won two prizes, Best Director and Creative Collaborator Awards for Joe Talbot. Um, It's written by Talbot and Jimmy Fales, who also co-stars. And it's based on a story which is partly autobiographically inspired. So he plays a sort of version of himself, a man who is obsessed by the idea of reclaiming his grand family home in the upmarket Fillmore district of uh, San Francisco, which has now been pushed out to the outskirts. He says his grandfather built the house, which is now lived in by a white couple who he thinks don't take any care of it. So Jimmy and his best friend Mont um, skateboard around San Francisco and take the bus regularly to the house where... Jimmy does patch-up work. He starts painting the the sills. And the couple who are living in the house go, what are you doing? You don't live here. Go away. And he says, no, I've just got to finish this. He goes, no, but we don't want you to. He says, okay, I'll come back then. And they're incensed by this until one day they no longer are to be the residents of the house. They arrive outside it and all their stuff is outside. Apparently there's been some inheritance issue and they're no longer going to be in the house. So our two heroes decide, well, you know, the house is empty why don't we just move back in? And they go and visit Jimmy's Aunt Wanda to retrieve the old furnishings and decorations that once adorned the house into which they have now decided to move. Your daddy didn't send you here, right? No. You sure? I swear to God. Because I hope he's done dragging you into his schemes. Auntie, this is for us. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of you, J-Bo. <laughs> I really am. Thank you. I miss that city. Oh, ooh. You still look good, though, baby. You still look good. Mm. <laughs> mm. Oh, my goodness. Mm. So the film has this, you can hear from just that clip, it has this sort of strange, laconic, gentle, ruminative, semi-kind of tragic tone. It was funded initially through a Kickstarter campaign, which got a huge amount of uh, of supporters. It was a short film which got in Sundance in 2017. And uh, it attracted the attention of Plan B. There's a lovely interview with the director who talks about um, them being invited to go and meet Brad when he was shooting Ad Astra and walking onto the set. And he said, and Brad Pitt was hanging in a spaceman's outfit against a green screen you know, on a piece of string up in the air. And he just assumed that what they were going to be told was, you know, hey, best of luck. But he wasn't. He was told was, yeah, we, we think this is a really good idea and we'll go with it. And Plan B have done a lot of interesting stuff. I think it's... It's really interesting that we all think of Brad Pitt primarily as an actor in the screen presence, but he has done an awful lot to support really interesting filmmaking, including this. Um, the film opens with a, a number of, sort of little vignettes, one of which is you see Jimmy and Mont sharing this skateboard. It's artificially large skateboard as they skateboard 
through the streets of San Francisco. And it's a beautiful shot because it tells you so much. Firstly, it tells you, it gives you the, the geography of where the drama is playing out. Secondly, it's kind of surreal. It's just odd seeing two grown, grown men standing together on a skateboard. But it also tells you about their friendship because one of them has to put their hands on the shoulders of the other one to stand. So it's like a beautiful visual thing that tells you right at the beginning, this is the world in which this film is taking place. And I, I love that... Um, the economy of, uh, of of storytelling there. The film's also about how the nature of a city can change, about gentrification, about people who, you know, built a city no longer being able to live in it, but also about how a city can look differently depending on whether you're inside a house or outside a house, whether you're inside the city or outside the city. And at the, at the very heart of it is really, a, you know, a fairly simple but similarly complicated story about how nobody is one thing. People can seem to be mean and nasty in one instant, but then you discover as you scratch the surface that they have their own pain and hardship beneath them. In fact, funnily enough, although this is a really odd comparison, I thought at one point of the film reminded me of Bait, of the portrayal of the people who have moved into the Cornish fishing village, who are sort of nominally the bad guys, but you also get a feeling that they've been sold a pup because they've been sold an illusion that doesn't, again, everyone's been lied to in some way or another. And for all the, the the grit and the reality of the storytelling, it's also once again it's a fairy tale. It's about uh, somebody you know somebody being exiled from their home, like a prince kind of exiled from their from their castle. And it has this brilliant score by Emil Mosseri, who I had not come across before. Um, maybe it's Emil Mosseri's first score, but it does this thing about sort of romanticizing the the. the portrait of san francisco in the in the way that the movies have so often done with new york you know like whenever you see new york now you think you have these great romantic ideas about it whether it's to do with taxi driver or manhattan or you know it's but it sort of brings that to uh to the to the san francisco uh, uh you know cityscape and there's like woodwind and brass which is very grand this is kind of this weird small quirky independent drama but with this woodwind and brass which has this sort of grand theme to it also interspersed with with singing and and sort of more poppy themes so that you get this kaleidoscopic sense of the place i thought it was really great very very strange very seductive terrific performances clearly made with passion and love and lovely that it was started by a Kickstarter campaign and then got picked up by Plan B. And I thought it was a, a, a really impressive piece of work. And not least because, as with Monos, it's a very hard film to describe in words because so much of it is to do with the tone, to do with the tone of it. It's oddly seductive. It could be this movie or it could be Monos' <laughs> movie of the week. It could be a tie if Mark wants to cop out. Tom in Brighton. As a man in his mid-30s going through some tough times, the last black man in San Francisco spoke to me on a very personal level. It turns out that one of the most difficult things to do in life is to be honest with yourself and confront who you really are. From Rocket Man to Ad Astra, this seems to be a regular theme. But for me, the last black man in San Francisco really hit home and pun intended. Although on the surface a tale of gentrification, this beautiful story of friendship, family and finding your place is about so much more. It's a very personal ode to an impersonal city, but it could really apply 
to anywhere. It's a film about having the courage to find your voice, about memory and being remembered, about being brave enough to face who you are in a world where the only constant is change. I wept, I laughed, and weeks later, I already miss being in its company. There we go. Lovely. What a lovely, lovely review. On the last black man. Consistently in in this show, the the listener reviews have been better than mine. (laughs) Not at all. I wouldn't accept that, but I think the listeners are rising to your... They are rising to the high standard that we set for them. Well done. Set seven minutes to five, couple of films to to come, and lots and some Bruce Springs. Yeah, yeah. So let's do this quickly. Black and Blue, which is an American thriller starring Naomi Harris, um, directed by Dion Taylor, who actually cut his teeth in horror thrillers, and written by Peter A. Dowling, who's who's got credits on um, that film Flight Plan. So she is Alicia West, um, who's a rookie cop who finds herself working for a police force in which um, racism is endemic. She's told very early on that she has to decide between being black and blue. And the thing is, you're blue now. So these are your, you know, no matter what you think about the racism around you, you are blue. Um, she's patrolling the area where she grew up, where she is basically shunned by uh, the people that, that that once knew her. They don't want to know her anymore because she's blue. Meanwhile, the police force don't trust her. They think she's not a team player. One day went out on patrol. She witnesses a, a the, the police committing essentially a horrific crime, which she accidentally films on her body cam, which films everything that she sees. And the next thing is she's on the run from the police and from the criminals in an area which she used to know, but in which she is now basically rejected by everyone. Here's a clip. Hello? No, it's me. It's me. What the hell is going on? Is that blood? I need sugar. Look, I don't know what's going on, but you can't be in here. Been shot. What? What do you mean? Can I use the phone? Who shot you? Can I use your phone? You gotta go. I don't want no parts of this. The police is riding around here all the time. They'll help you. It was the cops that shot me. So it's basically a pretty straightforward nuts and bolts thriller with a kind of central, interesting social commentary idea about what happens when somebody turns theoretically turns their back on their past in order to become something else. And the, the central title tells you black and blue. Um, it, I think it was originally called Exposure because it began life as a as a spec script. There are certain similarities with Yann de Manche's films 71, in which if you remember a British squaddy gets left gets abandoned in uh, in Belfast and he's running from both sides and indeed from the squadron from which he is uh, you know separated and so there's a similar thing about somebody it takes place over one night and somebody being trapped in this environment they don't fully understand um I think there are some tense uh, standoffs and uh, action sequences as it progresses towards the third act it becomes more and more foolish but there are some solid performances by uh, Tyrese Gibson as Mouse who is the sort of the person who reluctantly becomes a friend Frank Grillo is Terry Malone who who's the kind of the, the the heavy the hardball character who just kept reminding me of you know Jeremy Irons is evil Italian American brother but it's definitely Naomi Harris's film she carries it and she gives it a certain heft that raises it above being simply I think under other circumstances, it would have been a straight-to-DVD thriller. I don't think it's going to trouble the the box office very much, but I rather enjoyed it because I have a real fondness for a well-put-together Nuts and Bolts. Yeah, Nuts and Bolts is good. Nuts Nuts and Bolts is good, yeah, absolutely. Very watchable. As we kept saying, the phrase satisfactory is not a criticism. Exactly right. Um, I want to move on because we've got four minutes left to Western Stars, which is Bruce Springsteen co-directing with Tom Zimney, which is essentially a performance of the album, which you are familiar with. I like the album, Because you're a big Bruce fan. Um, 
recorded in his barn, his old barn, which he loves his old barn. It's not a barn like the kind of barn that any of the rest of us would have, but it's his old barn, um, interspersed with ruminative voiceover thoughts on the album, shots of him walking around, sometimes being himself, sometimes being the characters that he constantly talks about, that he invents for the purposes of his songwriting. Uh, here, here's a quick clip. Well, this song was my shot, my tribute to all the great Jimmy Webb songs about character and place. Here we find my brother in heartbreak, a long way from home, trying to work it off, sweat it out over a long, lonely summer in a faraway town. There we are, music and what words. What a great with, voice he's got. Yeah, yeah, music and words with, you know, interstitial drama bits of him uh, being lonely walking down a road, him being lonely driving a car, him being lonely looking after a horse. It's all too much looking after horses for me. And then joined on stage by Patti Scalfa, who plays guitar and sings and is obviously part of the narrative um, because the story is partly autobiographical. It's also, he says, about the central dichotomy at the heart of American life, the pull between individual freedom and communal responsibility. So at one point he talks about a character who's like a fading Western star who that's in the, in the song who you know kind of shot John Wayne or got shot by John Wayne and actually weirdly enough that put me very much in mind of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I mean they've, they're obviously drinking from the same well in terms of uh, inspiration um, musically it's very finely performed obviously they've it's I think it's recorded over a number of days and they've taken the very best performances um, I thought the film itself it, 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 it was a bit noodly and a bit navel gazing and there was a the, the, the separation between Bruce and between the characters that Bruce is playing was kind of blurred to the point that it was a little bit like Bruce you're not a cowboy I mean god bless you I'm sure you're lovely and all the rest of it but you aren't actually a cowboy um and I liked it although it didn't have the same effect on me that that Neil Young heart of gold thing did which, well the fact you liked it is I know I liked it because I'm, an achievement. I'm, I'm not a big Bruce fan tell me is is Western Stars one of his one of his better albums because Nebraska is the one well, one that, of his better makes it sound as though it's a struggle but I, I think it's a delightful record yes. okay yeah yeah well the performances are really good and I like the music um there is a lovely performance of uh, rhinestone cowboy which is yeah a, there's a lot of Glen Campbell in the in the in the record yeah well the Rhinestone Cowboy has a very big place in my heart for, a, for very personal reasons so I liked it and I'm, I'm impressed not, I'm not a huge but but I still think that Heart of Gold was the more profound experience for me uh, this has been a something else production for BBC Radio Five Live next week I'm going to be talking to Felicity Jones about her new movie The Aeronauts with <laughs> Eddie Redmayne uh, Mark your film of the week can I go for a double header I know I know go on. Well, let's say it together. Monos, Monos and, and the, the last, last black man, man in San Francisco. Thank you very much. Well, that was great. That was terrific, that show. Yeah, I was, it went really well. I thought it really picked up after the slightly chippy opening. It wasn't chippy. <laughs> Why was it chippy? <laughs> I'm still bearing a great... You a lager? Do I, I do, yes, but not a pint of cider. Have so, you ever, can I ask, have you ever had snake bite? No, never had snake bite. See, no, I haven't either. What? This is like a waste of lager, a waste of cider. I was, you know, I, I'm not a mixer really. So you just, if it's a nice drink, I'd just rather have. If it's a good cider, I'll have a cider. If it's a good beer, I'll have a beer. What's the point of mixing them together? I don't see the point. Yeah, I don't get it either. Lager and black, nothing. Not like a little just top of, you know. No, I guess when I was a kid, lager, lager and, and lime, lime, you know that, you know, a shandy, shandy, sir, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. Shandy heavy on the lemonade. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. 
That was the only I was allowed to go into pubs when I was younger. That's just half a shandy. <laughs> but that was a weird thing with pubs before. I mean, I know nowadays you have to sort of produce ID and everything, which is all very right and proper. But in the past, it wasn't be that you would, it wouldn't. It's not that they wouldn't serve you. It's just they'd only serve you shandy. So if you couldn't reach the counter, they wouldn't go. You're 13. I'm not serving you. They'd go lager shandy, a half. Yes, which is mainly all lemonade. <clears throat> <laughs> but they're still serving you. And also, there used to be. Did you have like off sales or offies, off license? You know, around the back of the side door of the pub. Right. You remember this? You'd have a pub, which was a pub. And then there'd be two bits. There'd be a saloon bar and a public bar, right? The saloon bar was the bit you couldn't go into, presumably because people were, were having gunfights. Yeah, or, and the, but you were yeah. too posh to go in there. I'm only quoting your wife. Uh, yeah, well, you can... She she does think I that. I can what? She, no, I can what? Because <laughs> what you're... I can what? Because <laughs> what, really? what? whatever you're going to say to me, you're also saying to her. I can well, oh, oh, how right? So, far, so anything I say to you, I'm saying to the good lady. Well, only in only in re- relation to this particular matter. Okay, so her so her her contention is, you know, I went to haberdashers, right? So, we, which is you know, school, yeah, just a good school. Yeah, yeah fine. thank you very much. But the, so her contention is, that, yeah, therefore, posh kid. And I go, well, that's actually not true. I was, you know, I had a, got a direct grant. It doesn't make any difference. As far as you can it say, does make a lot of difference. Kid. Yeah, but fine. So you're now arguing with Linda. Now your analysis? No, I'm not. But I'm just saying your analysis is right. We can have that win. Okay. There was, a, there was a point that I was getting to before we got to that. DVD of the week? No, it wasn't that. Should we do yeah. the... Yes, we shall. But let me finish this. Yes. So, it, it, so with pubs, yes. had a saloon bar. Not that I couldn't go into because I was too posh. But no. A saloon bar that kids weren't allowed to go into. Then you'd have a family bit, like a lounge, that kids were allowed to go into, but you didn't take them in because... It was, and then there'd be a side door with, a, with an off-sales place. Okay. Is, is this ringing any bell? None at all. Okay, well, pubs used to have a side door with an off-sales place that you right. could buy drinks to take out. Is and there an anecdote that goes with it? Yes, this? because what you would do is, it, for some weird reason, they wouldn't serve you over the counter. But if you went to the side door and said, I want a, you know, for my dad, they'd, ser- they'd serve you. But sometimes you could actually turn up with car- you know, with, with vessels and they'd fill them up with... with uh, so um, I'll have five pints of Watney's and 20 number six. It's for my, for my dad. dad. That's right. Very good, son. Move along. And if yeah, that was how it worked. So it was like a weird. It's like we won't serve you in the pub, but if you look honest and say it's for your dad, we will give you a flag and a veil. And you try and tell the kids today that they don't believe. They won't believe you. <laughs> now it's everyone's favourite DVD of the week. Uh, uh, hey Mark. Hey Simon. Hey Mark. Hey, Simon. I see Midsummer. It's one of the choices for DVD of the week. I went to Sweden recently and was amazed that their navy have barcodes on the side of their ships. Do you know why? Go on. It's so that when they come back into port, they can Scandinavian. Simon Poole's not here today. I asked the British expat (laughs) while I was there about the best part of living in Sweden. He said the flag's a big plus. (laughs) I do like that. (laughs) That's very good. Actually, I've got a better joke. <laughs> a Swedish woman, two Swedish men, and another Swedish woman walk into a bar. So that's three... Sw- <laughs> There's two Swedish men and two Swedish women walk into a bar. Walk into... Oh, yeah. oh I see. Ah. Walk into a bar. Walk into a bar. I see. Fine. Fine. Anyway, I noticed from the cast list of Midsommar that lots of the cast are from the country in which it's set, but some of them aren't really Swedish. Here we go. Those are the artificial sweeteners. (laughs) 
Anyway, I'll stop now. I'll stop now. <laughs> Let's see what our festival goers, all dressed in white, think should be our DVD of the week. Dreller 87. I haven't seen Birdie for 30 years, but my memories of it, it's close to a masterpiece, one of Alan Parker's best with a great Peter Gabriel soundtrack. Paul Matthews, it may not be everyone's cup of tea, but Nightbreed holds a special place for me. Not a perfect film, but it's fascinating to watch Clive Barker extrude his nightmarish visions onto the screen. Jen Littleton-Smith, Ghost Story was emotionally compelling, and I will be re-watching, but more excited about being seeing Midsommar, which will also be Mark's choice. Nigel Milner, any other week I'd pick The Marvellous Nightbreed, but this week it can only be Midsummer, an absolute masterpiece. It's a must-watch for anybody who enjoys well-made horror films, it's creepy, insidious atmosphere really gets under your Is it skin. Creaky, creepy, kooky, all of that. Mysterious and spooky. Olivia Hill says, would have to be Midsummer. I went to see it at the cinema on my birthday and was unwell during the film, which rather hindered my ability to enjoy it. I'm not sure if I felt sick because of the film or if it was just an illness, but a second watch would allow me to find out. And Tom Beasley, no contest, Midsummer's director's cut. Weirder, spookier and even more discombobulating than the theatrical cut. It's Ariasta living up to the hereditary t- hype uh, with something truly brilliant. Florence Pugh delivers a nuanced, textured depiction of how grief can hollow out someone's heart. I agree. What is our DVD of the week? Well, I'm with, uh, we can do it older than you. For a current release, it is Midsommar, yeah. and I am looking forward very much to watching the Ariasta director's cut, whether it'll be better or worse, I have yet to see. And for the reissue, I am going to go to not for Nightbreed because the Blu-ray does indeed contain both the original version and the reconstructed director's cut. And just the other week, I was doing a director commentary for uh, Exorcist 3 slash Legion with Kim Newman. And, uh, and, I, and I said to Kim, is the director's cut of Nightbreed actually substantially better than the version? Mm-hmm. Which we saw? And he said, it really is. Yes, it's the, it's the film as it was intended to be because the thing about that film is it got so hacked around in post-production weirdly enough Kim and I ended up collaborating on the monthly film bulletin review of Nightbreed I ended up writing the synopsis and he ended up writing the review it took two people to make sense of what had happened to the film what a strange thing it is very strange well Mark thank you for being fabulous thank you for thank being, you for being a, fabulous. my favourite contributor and I'm glad if I was, a bit posh yeah a little, a little bit, a bit posh, posh at the edges posh Mark you can email poshmark at bbc.co.uk. <laughs> we'll get that sorted. Is that like Posh Spice? Yeah. Hi, I'm Greg Jenner from BBC Horrible Histories. Sorry to hijack your eardrums, but I'm hosting a fun new podcast you might like. It's called You're Dead to Me, and it's a history podcast for people who forgot to learn any history at school. Every episode, I'm joined by a top comedian and an expert historian. It's funny, it's fascinating, and only a bit naughty. To fill in the blanks in your historical memory banks, subscribe to You're Dead to Me on BBC Sounds. <laughs>